Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here, live from the Bat Cave. Uh, we are rushing to get this episode out. I actually meant to get it out uh, before the Calgary Comics Expo, but just been very busy with the day job, prepping for C2E2. Regardless, very happy to have Jim Zub on uh, Word Balloon for the first time. Uh, we'll get the strange origin of Jim Zub from his uh, days at Udon Studios to uh, work in animation, also teaching animation, and uh, now... Uh, working, uh, teaching his, his animation course, but also uh, having great success with several books out there. Two of them are from Image, Skull Kickers, which is uh, wrapping up to uh, the 100th issue very soon. And um, there's also the series Wayward, which uh, its uh, first volume is out, and we'll be uh, talking about that at commercial time. But uh, uh, issue number six is uh, on its way as well. And uh, he talks about his collaborators that he works with, um, not only on uh, those series, but also uh, on books like uh, the Dynamite Red Sonia Conan uh, crossover that's uh, going on. Uh, He and Gail Simone are co-writing that. And uh, also for IDW, of course, my favorite, Samurai Jack, which has just been outstanding. And uh, really get into some details on that. So, uh, pleasure to have Jim Zub on today's Word Balloon. Uh, It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, as always, for your support. Um, Word Balloon is free. It will always be free. But uh, if uh, you'd like to kick in and uh, help things out as I uh, travel across the country to conventions and uh, buy new equipment to keep things updated and uh, try to uh, make expansions to the Word Balloon network, you can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, I'm only asking for like even a dollar a month would be awesome. Uh, and I appreciate the support. And thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners. The best way you can help me with Word Balloon is let a friend know that you like the show and they should be listening as well. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Wonderful deals are happening now at InStock Trades. Uh, specifically on some great Jim Zub product. You can get Pathfinder from Dynamite, Volume 1, Dark Waters Rising. Uh, that is uh, 30% off, just $20.99. You can get the uh, Samurai Jack Trade Paperback Volume 3, Quest for the Broken Blade. We talk about that very story. Uh, of course, it's Jim Zub and Andy Suriano. And uh, it is 30% off, $13.99. You can get uh, his work on, and I had forgotten that uh, he'd worked on uh, Tale of Sand. He must have done uh, some uh, pinup work in that, because as we know, Ramon Perez, uh, the artist on that, and Jim Henson wrote it. Wonderful uh, story, though, 30% off, $34.99. You can also get his work on Shadow Man, uh, trade paperback, uh, Dead Side Blues. It's um, 30% off, just $10.49. Did I mention the Wayward trade paperback, String Theory? Uh, volume 1 is uh, 42% off, $5.79. It's all waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. Uh, check it out. There are other great deals happening, and I'll tell you about those at the end of the show. But uh, check it out for yourself, and you'll find great deals at InStockTrades.com. All right, uh, we're going to start things off with Jim Zub. We had kind of a weird uh, Skype connection. It's never uh, beyond uh, understanding what Jim is saying. But the only way to describe it is the line got kind of thick and real bassy. And uh, no treble, but uh, never did I feel that it was too muffled or that I had to like kind of stop Jim's train of thought. And I thought that was more important and felt that it was still a great conversation. Uh, we talk a lot about Canada, especially early on, because I try to convince uh, Jim of my uh, Canadian credentials. Not that he asked. 
It wasn't like I was at the border and I had to prove myself before I could, you know, go to Windsor or anything like that. But uh, I am. I'm a big Canada fan. I, I, there's a lot of things about Canada that I enjoy uh, from SCTV on down, and I rattle off a whole bunch of stuff to uh, Jim, and uh, happy to do so. So uh, let's welcome Jim Zub to Word Balloon. You're in oh, Toronto? Yeah, I'm in Toronto. There are a lot of comic oh. creators up here. Oh, yeah. No, no, I know. I'm I'm, I'm sorry I haven't met you yet. I... Uh... I, I always uh, I forget where Fowler is. Is Fowler in Toronto? He's not. I know Francis. He's is. in. He, I think Fowler's in Ottawa. Francis okay. is in Toronto. Um, and I know Jeff Lemire. Oh, that's right. Of course, Jeff is. Yes, Ray and um, Fox. I, you know, I've just recently uh, met Ray. Uh, I've I, uh, I I've only like talked to him very briefly. He hasn't been on the podcast yet, and I haven't gotten to know him yet. But uh, Fowler. Well, I know. Uh, I was going to say Catherine and Stewart live in London. Right. They lived in Toronto for a while, but they moved yes. out. They wanted yeah. something more rural, yeah. But And I forget if Fowler, but I but I told Fowler, I'm like, you know, honestly, I, I got to say, because really, Francis, I consider Francis a friend and Tom a friend and, and the Immamans a friend and uh, and Jeff and everything. And I'm like, Fowler, you know, it's kind of amazing. I go, I really, like, have a lot of Canadian friends. He's like, yeah, six. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I'm so, like, yeah, I know. That's, that's a good impression of Tom, by the way. <laughs> That's totally. He's got that just that that abrasive kind of. He just he's he'd come over just slap you on the back. Hey, buddy, what's up? You're just like, oh god. And I'm not speaking out of school because I'm I'm reasonably certain it was on uh, our interview, and I'm sure he would be like, yeah, whatever. I got no problem saying that. He's he kills me. He oh no, he's a funny guy. He's a good good dude. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm leaving all this in so we can we could just begin. Oh nice, sure. We'll just dive right into it. You go. I'm welcoming uh, Jim Sub Zub to the uh, Word Balloon uh, podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to finally talk to you. It's a pleasure to be on. It's funny. I've been listening to a bunch of the archives actually, so your voice cool. seems very familiar now. It's kind of odd. That's, that's cool. Well, I appreciate that. I'm a gentle guy. How's he going? <laughs> you know, I, my my six Canadian friends will back me up. <laughs> that's right. I think two more, and the prime minister calls me. I'm not sure. Oh yeah. You know, I heard, and then forgive me. I'm gonna do this. I've never done this with any of the other Canadians I've had on, but it, it occurs to me because with the 40th anniversary of Saturday Night Live, Lauren Michaels mm-hmm. was doing a lot of interviews, and um, I remember him talking on. I think it was Fresh Air, the NPR show, that uh, you know he had some conversation of. When he had done a little bit of work in Los Angeles in the late 60s, he worked on, I believe, Laugh-In and, and another kind of variety show, went back to Canada and was like, you know, hey, you know, I really want to stay here. I want to do X, Y, and Z. And his program director was like, well, you know, if you're so good, why, why are you still here? And now, <laughs> again, this was, and this was like 1969, 1970, maybe 1973. Right. The Burns the and Shriver variety show before Saturday Night Whoa. Live. And that's what convinced him to – I know. Well, yeah, you know, they were actually for their time decently funny. They right. were all right. The, the guy, the, the the big guy, was the Doritos guy with the curly the hair. Doritos and the Doritos guy. Oh my god! Way back. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now you're wow. much younger than me. But yeah, the he was like the '70s uh, Doritos uh, spokesman, and, and it really it was all silent. <laughs> it was all silent commercials. Look up, look up Avery Schreider, Shriver Doritos commercials. I'm sure they're on YouTube. Okay. But anyway, I'm going a long <laughs> way around. My point is, and I'm back because um, I'm just like. Do you feel consuming both, uh, you know, types of media that, you know, creative people are, are getting to do things uh, in Canada and, you know, at, you know, at a decent way? I had I was having this conversation with Kari Andrews about filmmaking. And I don't know, as an observer, how, how 
you know, hip you are beyond, uh, you know, comics and games and, and the stuff you guys did with Udon and, and stuff like right. that. But, uh, yeah, any your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, it's it's so interesting now. You know, more than ever, it's such a, a global melting pot of entertainment. And American entertainment has obviously been imported everywhere. I mean, I grew up on so many American shows. But every so sure. often, I, I um, there's some Canadian show, and I just – assumed it was American or I assumed everyone watched it. Do you know what I mean? And then mm-hmm. I'll talk to someone when I'm at a convention about it or whatever. And they're like, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. And I would have to track back and find out that, no, that was a Canadian specific show. Cause I, I mean, some go. of the stuff was kind of branded, but, but the majority of it was just like, it was just TV. When you're a kid, you're not that discerning anyways. Sure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's not something I was really cognizant of growing up. And nowadays, it's so funny. I don't even get to watch anything. Like, I, I don't take in as many movies or TV just because of my work schedule. Because uh, mm-hmm. I've still got a day job I'm juggling while I'm doing the comic thing. So it's uh, okay. it's intense, but not in a bad way. Like, I still go to the movies every so often. Although it sure. tends to be more nerdy than anything else. You know, like, we got our Avengers tickets and whatever. But, you know. Is, uh, is Shit's Creek a Canadian-produced show? Or shit, shit, I, isn't that Shit's Creek? I think it's. Called I think Shit's so. Yeah, I don't watch it, so I'm not. I'm pretty sure it is, though. Yeah, we, it's weird. we've got a quirky it. sense of humor up here too. <laughs> oh, dude, you know, honestly, I'm a huge Ken Finkelman fan. Oh yeah, uh, I I loved, and I'm going to say the newsroom, and I'm not talking about the Jeff Daniels HBO show that just wrapped up. I'm talking right. about the '90s and early, well, or was it '90s or early 2000s? I think it was '90s. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was like a Larry Sanders behind the scenes at a 24-hour Toronto-based uh, news network, right. like, a, like a Canadian CNN, basically. Yeah, but there are lots of, you know, SCTV or Kids in the Hall. and I mean, there's oh, just God, so yeah. many different shows oh, yeah. that... That's they, the easy they, stuff. Oh, oh please, yeah, man. sure. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but for, you're right. For everyone I, oh, and I, at I, home, right? <laughs> that's true. But no, and I am a huge, huge SCTV fan. So absolutely. Oh, God. I met Harold Ramis, one of the Chicago guys that was part of the TV show. But uh, yeah, really, really big fan of SCTV. So anyway. Awesome. All right. All right. There you go. That was my kid. We, got, was, it. we uh, got our Canadian content in so we can now air was, this on the CBC. I was we about got, to say everything. exactly that. Yes, exactly, <laughs> man. There you go. So now C- CBC approved. I, I got a say big announcement. Sy- yeah, I'll say maple syrup like three times. We're set. Boom. <laughs> Done. I got a I'm, I'm replacing Gian Gameshi and Strong. Oh. All right. <laughs> See? Nice. Oh, he's hey, got man, it all. I'm not, yeah, I'm not fucking around, Sub. I know my <laughs> I know my Canadian entertainment. I'm telling you. Do you no, get up no, here to the shows the in Canada? Do you, do you ever come up for the conventions? No, I, you know, I really want to because uh, Tizano, the, the guy that uh, uh, curates, Fan Expo. You know, yeah. yeah, Fan Expo in, in Toronto and stuff. Good friend. I mean, really has become a really good friend and – we hang out in San Diego, and he comes to Chicago all the time, and and really just busts my balls about not going up. He, to he busts everyone's balls about everything. You can't of really hold that right. against him. He that's sounds true. like an yeah, American. Really, <laughs> he busts he busts people's balls like an American. I I was convinced he was American at first. I get under his skin because he's Italian. And I'm like, you sure you're not Greek? And he gets really like, hey man, I'm not Greek, and I am Greek, so I love I love asking him that. Just, to, just amazing. To but anyway, <laughs> but no, it's no, that's the thing. I know it's an amazing show and that that Tiz would like give me, you know, a list uh, treatment and everything yeah. and help me out. 
which is now, there's, a, there's a bunch of great events. Uh, the Toronto Comic Arts Festival in May is a really no. unique show because it's it's free to the public and it's in the main reference library right downtown. So. You know, hundreds of creators open to the public. You get tons of wander traffic and people who don't know that much about comics suddenly discovering stuff for the first time in this amazing creator-centric festival. That one's really sharp. Um, we've got a big anime show. If that's, I know it's probably not your thing, but uh, you know that that runs in May as well. Um, you know, the, but Canada in general, the Calgary show is is coming up soon, and that's. A huge show now. It's like got to be the fourth or fig- fifth biggest in North America now. It's it's and massive. that's this as we're recording. It's this weekend, I believe. That's right. Yeah, it's their tenth uh, Chicago. Man, and then and yeah. you know I said this I said this at the beginning of last uh, week's episode. God, this is like every week. There's a major convention. oh a convention culture is unbelievable. You know, I I'm not even like an old timer on this stuff, but I've been going to shows since 2002. And just in those 13 years, you know, the growth has been unbelievable, geometric in a lot of cases. And every year, shows are posting that they're breaking, you know, attendance records uh, year after year after year. More shows get announced for every geographic region every weekend. Like, it's, you, you know, in some ways, I, I've been talking to some of my, my friends working in the business. We, we email a lot back and forth, and we talk about the fact that you literally, you, A, you can't attend them all anymore – and B, it's a bit competitive in the sense that if you've got a few books going on, you can kind of – you're not trying to play them against each other, but you're sort of like, well, I've got choice. Like, I can, where do I want to go this weekend or what do I want to do, you know, in terms of, of attending? And, so you're, and so you're playing point. convention – yeah, so playing convention versus convention in other words. Yeah. Not, not exactly. Like, I wouldn't play them yeah. against each other, but I'm sort of looking and saying, well, I've never been there before. That's a – you know, I – sure. I can see what the readership's like there, or, you know, in some cases you're you're hearing from other people that a show's really great, so you kind of get in touch with them, and you know, next year I want to be there, I want to try it out. Uh, some friends were at MegaCon last weekend, and um, they were saying that it was uh, just fantastic, particularly um, uh, John Tyler Christopher, the guy that did the covers for the Figment comic that I did for Disney. He was saying that you know that book went gangbusters because Disney World's right there. And so he said he signed more figments than, you know, Star Wars. He said it was just absolutely crazy. So he's like, you got to get down there, you know. No, it's interesting. And, and yeah, that is uh, ever since they bought Marvel, it's interesting to see more activity with the Disney Mark uh, licenses. And I know that Boom and a few others have had them over the years. But I imagine with great restrictions and then, you know, now you really have got, you know, I would like I said, it has to inspire the Disney comic end to get more productive. Certainly it just seems like it given the product that we've seen since the acquisition. Yeah, you know? totally. Well, I think that the, you know, as the, the, they're getting more comfortable with the different departments and how they work together, you know, sure. they, they seem to be striking a good balance where they're using, they're letting Marvel be Marvel, but then they're also sort Absolutely. of using what Marvel does well and hopefully propagating that in other areas. Sure. Yeah, absolutely, man. No, and and even, you know, uh, using talent as well. No, I think it's, uh, again, interesting. And, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you this at some point. We're kind of here anyway. You you talk about uh, the conventions and stuff like that. As far as doing books, because we'll get to the specifics of the books in a little bit, but as Mm -hmm. far as doing books, you know, I've seen you write on your, I believe it was on your blog, where you were talking about uh, just the changes that you've seen in the last five years. Oh, yeah. you know, and I and I am curious, and this is something I ask all the 
people that do create their own books right now, and especially who have been doing it for a while, like what they've seen, and you know, can you point to a, to a certain point when when Kirkman made his manifesto, and I loved it, right, and appreciated it. I I totally admit, and people can again listen to the archives to prove it. Um, I I was like, hey man, you know, not everyone could be Robert Kirkman. I mean, no, absolutely, he did awesome and everything. But it is interesting to see people like yourself uh, and Tim Seeley, Mike Norton are you know two Chicago guys, and and I know through Devils do. I don't know how much you you ever work with them. Oh, I know those um, guys. Yep. Yeah, and I figured you did. Um, well, anyway, yeah. I mean, it's just that like as opposed to the the Kirkmans, the Vaughns. Uh, the fractions, you know, Brubaker, who had already established their names very well at, at you know, DC or Marvel, uh, right. can then, you know, go over to uh, do their own books and have a huge following and stuff. But I really feel like you and guys like Celia Norton with Revival and stuff, you know, it's a, it's a smaller crowd, but pr- you're proving that point that, you know, obviously things are going better and, and you guys are able to, you know, quit the day job and really focus on making your books and stuff. So yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm still transitioning, you know, so I've still got the day job going, but the reality is that I am. Yeah. I teach it. I teach at an art college. Well, it's not art college. It's a general college, but I teach in there in the art and animation programs uh, at Seneca college. It's the biggest college in Canada here in Toronto. And I've been there for over 10 years. Uh, Absolutely love it. And it's great because the school is really flexible about my schedule. If I'm traveling and stuff, they they like that I'm involved in the in the bigger industry. And so, you know, for them, it's a bit of a feather in their cap. You know, as long Excellent. as I'm doing makeup classes and things run smoothly in the grand scheme of things, they're cool with it. But but it's um, it's been an interesting you know ride because it is sort of the reverse. Like you're saying, you know, guys like uh, Brew Baker or or Vaughn, where they establish themselves over at Marvel and DC, and then they strike out and do their creator own stuff and they bring that uh, visibility and I, you know, other people and I, I'm in that boat where I haven't, yeah, you know, I've had, um, I haven't had a big, you know, like a DC Marvel kind of book. I, you know, I've done some work for both companies and I've enjoyed it and I'd be happy to do more, but it's not, that's not sort of where I got my visibility. My visibility was through the creator own stuff first. And it's, Absolutely. so it's been, a, it's, it, I don't know, it feels scrappier, I guess, but it you know it works whatever works and I think that's the thing about it, it. There is no one pathway, and I'm sure you know that with all the dozens mm-hmm. of people you've interviewed. Everyone, whatever works for them, and so getting my name out there and building on my own creator own stuff has been really valuable because I was able to sort of establish this is the kind of work that I like doing, rather than trying to carve that out of the superhero stuff. And so I can say, okay, I like you know sword and sorcery, or I like action or like comedy or whatever it may be. And then the other work that I've been getting, the work for hire work that I've done, they tend to approach me on that same level because I've already sort of set that as a precedent. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- this is the kind of work I like doing, or this is the, the sort of stories that I do best with rather than, you know, trying to convince them, Hey, just let me do a little bit of the superhero thing to prove to you that I'm a professional. So, you know, again, I, I really enjoy doing both. I like doing work for hire. I find it uh, challenging in the best kind of way. The the creative juices are flowing and you've got a structure there that you're trying to enhance, but also not break. You know what I mean? And then at the same token, you're doing your own stuff. Like I, I'm doing creator on at the same time. And it's sort of the best of both worlds is I've got that outlet to do things the way I want to do it. 
And then I'm also doing commercial stuff and learning a lot too. You know, the, every uh, work for hire project is a, is a learning process where you're like, okay, this is, you know, just working with different editors, working with different properties, working with different approvals and, and understanding that process and hopefully bringing the best traits of that back to my own stuff eventually. But what do you see now with your creator own stuff that is different? Um, you know, like take me from like when you started Skull Kickers and you and what 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 was there before Skull Kickers, if anything, as far as well, there was. Uh, I mean, attempts. yeah, I did. Um, I did a web comic back in two thousand one, and that was sort of the impetus. I, this is one of the weirdest things. I've never been to a convention as a fan. The first convention I went to, I was already making comics. So in, in 2001, um, I started doing an online comic uh, that I serialized just through a, a little, well, at the time it was one of the bigger um, web comic sites. It was called Keen Spot, and they had like a, they had their main site, and then they had this sub-site, which was sort of like web hosting for other people to do their own comic stuff. And I just got a little bit of space there. It was called Keen Space. And I did this comic called The Makeshift Miracle. So I was working, doing animation work, and it was really, um, I don't know how you, I mean, it wasn't very creative. It was very kind of uh, plodding along stuff. And I wanted an outlet. So in the evening, I just started making this comic, and I posted up like three pages a week. So I do Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. Wow. And the first the first few pages were pretty pretty awful and i didn't know that much about photoshop and i didn't know anything <laughs> about websites but that seemed a heck of a lot easier to me than getting stuff printed or distributed sure at least you know i could get it out there to people i figured and so um from there i just you know i, I learned a lot about about the the form i learned about you know how to tell a story and panel the panel and just little bits and pieces as i as i kind of went along and, what did you? Um, where would you go for like in terms of comparing what you were doing and and you know finding finding better ways of of doing it? Well, it was weird, right? Because at the time in web comics, there was like mm-hmm. everyone was kind of doing almost like newspaper style humor strips, and no I was doing this. I was doing this like narrative story. I was doing mm-hmm. an actual, and that's not better or worse. It was just different than a lot of the other people, um, and so. It, but it was a much slower burn because you didn't have gag a day kind of formatting. Right. So it took a, you, we were getting a readership building up, but it wasn't something where it was, it would go viral because people weren't going to share a funny pop culture anecdote. There was nothing like that in the story. It was a real slow sure. burn. Yeah. And it was so, like, yeah, like adventure strips and every, you know, Steve Canyon and stuff. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big old comic strip. Uh, adventure yeah. Fan. And, and so, so you're basically like, it took a, you know, I probably had 40 or 50 pages before it started to get a bit of a, a buildup of people interested in, in what was going on because they could see, you know, they could read the archive and build up uh, empathy for the characters and whatever. And then um, it was around, it, it's so weird describing this stuff because the internet's so different now. But at the time, it was like if people bookmarked your site, then they would come back and they would check on it. And if they didn't, you would just, you know, they might forget your URL, they might never find you again. Sure. Absolutely. And so you, you were like desperate just to keep people on board. And so you'd write these little sort of updates and around Christmas time. So I started in September and around Christmas time, I said, I'm going to take like a two week break for Christmas and New Year's. Please come back. Don't leave. I promise I'm going to update. Like it was just this like desperate <laughs> pleading, uh, you know, hey, that our, our numbers were up and I was hoping to keep people around. And I got an email out of the blue from Scott McLeod and he said, we're reading it. It's fine. Just stop whining. 
That's fantastic. That's <laughs> and, excellent. Uh, I was wondering if like, yeah, he's like, back. you're doing great work, you know? And so we started talking back and forth over email, and he gave me his phone number, which was really mind-numbing to me at the time. And I called him up, and we chatted, and he was incredibly supportive. And uh, he was just saying how, you know, the web was really changing things, and it was going to be, you know, the, the, the future of comics and all this stuff. And um, he wanted to, you know, he asked me if I would come down to San Diego Comic-Con because there were going to be a bunch of people that were going to be there. And I said, well, I don't, you know, I don't have the money and I don't have a hotel and I don't have a badge. <laughs> and he was like, well, I can vouch for you, you know, on the professional front so you can get a badge. You can't do that nowadays, but at the time he could do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, he uh, put me in touch with some other creators and I literally got crash face on someone's floor. And then... Um, <laughs> My, I, I was talking to my parents about it, and I was sort of describing how crazy this all was. And my dad uh, asked me if this was really important, and I said, "Well, it's like it's not. This isn't, you know, this is a hobby for me, but it feels like it's important. Like it's something I don't know if I'll ever have this chance again." And so my dad basically cleared my visa because I built up some student debt, and sure, I sure. bought a plane ticket and went to San Diego not knowing what was going to happen. It was this crazy, you know, thing that's, that you can do when you're in your early 20s. Um, <laughs> so were you in the Webcomics Pavilion? Or was, well, they didn't was, have a Webcomics Pavilion. It was that. <laughs> there was no such thing. I, you know, it was funny. And I, what, the first time I met Scott McCloud in person, it was the funniest thing because I walk over in the artist alley and, you know, no one's got the big banners like they do now. It was just tables and artists. And you'd look at the little name tag and go, oh, that's, that's Adam Hughes. Oh, that's, you know, so-and-so. <laughs> it's so different even then. And sure. I walk over and Chris Claremont's got a table and Scott McCloud's showing him on a computer like a comic. And uh, Claremont's just like, this is weird, Scott. Like, I don't know if I like this, you know? And, and Scott's just raving how great this thing is. Because, look, you can just keep scrolling. There's no end to the page. And, you know, Scott, I, I'm sure you've talked to him. He's the most excited guy about comics ever. And so he's just sitting there giddy talking about all this stuff. And I kind of walk over and, and I, I go to introduce myself and Scott just, it was like, you know, like a weird reunion. Like I'd never met the guy. And all of a sudden he was like, Oh, Jim. And he goes, Chris, do you know, Jim? Like how would wow. Chris Claremont know who the fuck I am? Like, there's just no way on earth. But in Scott's mind, it was like comics. Everyone knows everyone in comics. And so he was just like gleefully introducing me to all these, you know, people whose work I'd grown up on and was, was absolutely, you know, astonished to even see, let alone meet. It was, I mean, it was an amazing kind of whirlwind weekend. So got to meet all sorts of people and, uh, uh, just, you know, it was networking, but not in a way that I knew what that even was. It was just hanging out and chatting with people and coming back and feeling really invigorated and excited about the potential of comics. Really. Um, that was my first kind of comic experience. And so then did the webcomic uh, get you Skull Kickers? Is that how it went? No, and that's the other what funny was it between? thing. So a, yeah, what was yeah, it there's between? Yeah, there's quite a gap. So um, I finish up the, the webcomic in late, or I guess around mid-2003. And so I'd done about 180 pages, and the story wrapped up. And I, I talked about either doing a sequel or I was going to do another online story, and then the stuff that was going on in my personal life was really tumultuous and my finances were all over the place. 
and I had moved across the country and it was just, things were really a mess. And so I was like, kept putting it off, like what I was going to do next and not sure, you know, if I was going to go back to school, you know, I, my background's in classical animation. So, you know, hand-drawn sort of Disney style animation and the whole market had just folded up and turned into computer animation, particularly in video games and everything else. And so I didn't have, I needed to focus on that in terms of my career and what I thought I was going to be doing with the rest of my life. And so I was looking at going back to school for like a post-grad computer animation course and uh, applied to hilariously the school where I'm now teaching. And um, basically uh, was supposed to go to school. This would have been fall 2003. And that summer, my whole goal was don't spend money because you don't have any. Be careful. And um, a friend of mine who I'd worked with a little bit, he was working at the Udon studio. And that was a, an art studio. And they're still, they weren't even a publisher at that point. Now they're a publisher doing tons of manga and comic stuff. But at the time, they were just like an art studio that was doing work for Marvel. They were doing work for video game companies and, and all sorts of different uh, commercial art. And uh, I showed them my portfolio and they said, oh, your stuff looks pretty good, but we don't have any, any work. Uh, we'll be in touch. And then a week later, they were like, oh, we just got swamped with a bunch of stuff. Do you want to do some like comic book coloring? And I was like, what? Like I could color comic books like for real. Like it's just mind bending to me. And so I ended up, uh, they were doing work for dark horse. They were coloring, recoloring the, uh, the old Barry Windsor Smith Conan stuff. And so I got my summer job was I was recoloring Barry Windsor Smith pages. It was surreal. Uh, absolutely. You know, amazing. And I thought, that okay, is awesome. yeah, it was really fun. And I, you know, I'm a huge combo guy, huge Conan guy and, and, and just blown away that I got to work on this stuff. And it was really fun. And the studio was starting to get all sorts of different projects. And so by the end of the summer, uh, I was not only uh, doing some artwork for their kind of non-comic book commercial art stuff, but I was also, helping Eric Coe, the guy that manages the company, just to keep things organized. I'm pretty fastidious and I'm, you know, pretty organized as a, both as a teacher and as a person. And so I helped him sort of just get, you know, a bunch of paperwork pulled together or make sure that we're following up with clients properly. A lot of, you know, office stuff that not, not fun, but needs to get done. And so by the end of the summer, he's like, man, we're really busy and things are going really well. Please don't go back to school. Like just stay here. (laughs) And, and work with us, you know, this, this, don't you like this? And I'm like, this is actually way more fun than anything I thought I'd be doing in animation. Um, I, I'd, I'd love to stick around. And so I called the school up and said, look, I, I've got this job opportunity. Can I, um, delay on going back, you know, to, to post-grad? And they said, no problem. And they deferred me to the January, uh, intake. So for the next few months, I was just working at Udon. Uh, learning a ton about publishing, learning a ton about art and production and printing and just everything, going to conventions. And then eventually uh, Eric, a dear, dear friend, you know, uh, boss of, of Udon, he, um, he, he doesn't really like running convention stuff. He finds it really frustrating. And so I started just running the convention booth for Udon. And this was by the time they were doing the Street Fighter comics and things like that. So the studio was back in the news and they were doing all sorts of cool stuff. And I started to go to comic conventions as a, as sort of a project manager and an artist. And I really enjoyed it. 
Uh, and so making comics was kind of not, it was, it wasn't that it was out of my mind, but it just felt like, well, that's not my priority right now. I'm learning about the business. I'm making a career in this thing. And so bit by bit, I started working like crazy, trying to make the most of that. A teaching opportunity came up for art at the school and between managing projects at Udon and teaching at the, at the college, I was swamped and the idea of making comics just seemed impossible to me. But that, I mean, that's so that we're talking 2004 and onwards. So for a good six years, well, I guess about five years, I was cranking away at the Udon studio and learning a ton about the business and meeting people. But as a, as a, as a project manager, rather than like as management, rather than as a, a creator. Um, and it started to wear me down, like, you know, any kind of job, uh, particularly one where you're dealing with clients and I loved it and we would get amazing work, but it's very stressful. You know, you, you're the go between with the art team and the creative and the, uh, and the clients and you're working your butt off and you, I would go to conventions and people would be like, Hey, you know, is, are the artists around? Like I was just the go between, Hey, are the important people there? Hey, are the cool people there? And I was just like, Oh, I used to do art. I used to really enjoy this. I used to tell stories and want to do these things. And, and I just, I just felt this real loss, you know, in what I was doing. And I, everyone I would talk to, they'd be like, well, you're traveling all over the place and you're doing such cool things, you know, and, and that would like remind me, no, no, I can't, I can't feel bad. I can't be angry. This is, I'm doing good stuff. This is fun. This is what I want to do. But I couldn't deny it after a while. Like, it's like, nah, that's not really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be creating. I wanted to be telling stories, not helping other people meet their deadlines. You know what I mean? Sure. And I constantly. Well, and, and, making, and making other guys' dreams happen, basically, yeah. because you're doing and, all, the, and, all the business stuff, you know? Absolutely. And, and, you know, and not that I begrudge anyone. I mean, I learned sure. a ton at the studio, and everyone was very kind and very cool. And, and I love those guys. They're like family. But I needed, like, I could feel this pull, and I was just like, okay, I'm either going to do something for myself, or I'm going to get out, because I, I don't want to hate this stuff, and I don't want to be sure. bitter about it. And right around the same time, um, just total luck of the draw, one of the uh, artists that I'd worked with at the studio named Chris Stevens, he was approached by editor Joe Keating, now writer Joe Keating, who was doing the pop gun uh, anthology for image. Mm-hmm. And he basically was like, Hey Chris, I love your artwork. Would you like to do a story for our next volume? And so Chris said to me, cause he was doing a bunch of projects for our studio. And he was like, am I allowed to do this thing? I'm like, you're not on contract, man. You're a freelancer. Do whatever the hell you want. And he was like, cool. Well, they want me to draw a story for them. I'm like, great. I hope it goes really well. And then, um, so he contacted them and said, what story do you want me to draw? And they were like, no, no, man, do whatever you want. It's your own story. And he goes, oh. And then he calls me up and he goes, they want me to do my own story. I'm like, that's great. And he goes, I have no idea what the hell I would do for a story. So we just yammered on the phone back and forth. And I was like, well, what do you like? And he's like, oh, you know, I love when we do the fantasy stuff. And I think that would be really, you know, I'm going to do something fantasy, but I don't want it to be pretentious. And so just on the phone, we just started jamming ideas back and forth. And the basic idea was, okay, there's these two jerks killing monsters, and they're just kind of bastards, like they're just troublemaking bastards. And by the end of the phone call, he was laughing, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm totally going to write that. I'm going to do it. Okay, thanks, Jim. You're the best. And then the next day, he called me back, and he goes, 
I tried to write it down, but it was way funnier when you said it. Do you want to just write it and I'll draw it? And I was like, I would love to. <laughs> that would be the best. And so I wrote that first short story and it was like something snapped in my head and I went, hey, this is a lot of fun. This is like the kind of stuff I love doing. <laughs> and so um, Eric Larson was publisher at Image at the time. He read the story and he really liked it. So he contacted us and basically said, hey, this is really good. You guys should do more with this. And we were like, OK, you know, we probably will. And then, you know, time flies by and client work is piling up. And the next thing we know, the next volume of Pop Guns coming out and Joe asks us if we'll do another story. And Chris is like, man, I'm really busy. I don't think I can do another 10 page story. I said, we could do a story in three pages. He's like, no, I'm like, yeah. And so I wrote a three page story and he thought it was really fun. And, and then Larson said, yeah, this is really good. Let's do an actual image book. And all of a sudden we had an image book, you know, offer. And, you know, that really kind of unlocked something in my brain that sort of said, remember when you wanted to do this stuff Remember when you wanted to tell stories and bit by bit, it took us a while to get it off the ground because we were very, very busy. And Chris ended up having to bow out because of his um, work schedule and personal stuff. But I still had the, the initial scripts and I had the outline and all the other stuff. And uh, I ended up finding Edwin and we hooked up and, started working on the series together and we launched in September, 2010. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was kind of that, that would be sort of the end. Like I, you know, I'm, I would stay at Udon for another two and a half years, but in the back of my head, it was already kind of changing. You know what I mean? Like okay. I got to write, I want to, I want to make stuff. Uh, you know, so I sort of wrapped up my commitments bit by bit and then gave my notice at the studio. And uh, I've been freelance writing up a storm and, and teaching ever since then, slowly but surely kind of building up um, a bit of an audience for the stuff that I do. The good news, obviously, is having those business skills, though, all that time has oh, to yeah. make you – I mean, that that clearly – and I know this myself, uh, coming from broadcasting and much preferring to, you know – worry about the four hours of, of each show that I would do on the radio versus, you know, actually trying to sell the damn thing. And thank God there was a sales staff. And now with right. you know, Word Balloon and what I do and stuff, yeah, I got to kind of do everything. And yeah, man, I mean, just every, I'm sure every creative person, you know, kind of goes to, oh, fuck, I got to like sell the shit too? Can right, I just right. So this somebody else a, to sell? That is kind of my secret weapon is I, I learned about the marketing. I learned about the distribution. I learned about the printing and I learned about color correction and high-res files and project management and scheduling and here's how a contract works and here's like all this stuff that you couldn't that, that no one will teach you in this business you know what I mean and I got a crash course in it for years and you know made some mistakes thankfully nothing that would destroy my career but you know you make mistakes you you figure things out and you sort of like oh I will never do that again so by the time I was sitting down to do skull kickers not only did I kind of know the pitfalls in terms of, okay, here's how we got to get the book in on time. And here's how we got to schedule things. And this is the artwork and this is the files format, you know, like the image guys were more than happy to do a bunch of that work, you know, the, the layout of the book or the design or the stuff, but I, they didn't have to, you know, one of the things they joke with me, they're like, you're like a turnkey solution. You just gave us a print ready file and we just send it to the printer. We just throw the indicia on it 
and it's good to Fantastic. go. Absolutely. So I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm low impact. Like I don't, I don't get in your way. You know, I'm, I know what I need to do. Just give me permission to publish the book and I'll, I'll do the rest, you know? And how that's kind of been my way. How has Sorry. the transition been from, no, no, I, that was fine. I didn't mean to step on you and let you finish. How has the transition been uh, from Larson to Stevenson? Uh, you know, obviously you're continuing to come up with new ideas and, and images listed. Sure. Well, it's interesting because um, although Larson was the one that greenlit the book, uh, it didn't start publishing until Stevenson was already the publisher. And I, there okay. was an awkward oh, bit okay. there where, where when Stevenson picked up the torch uh, for the company, he was following up on old pitches. And he actually contacted me and said, hey, is this thing happening? And I was like, well, you know, Chris's schedule got all fucked up and we don't know if we're going to do it, but I'm trying to pull it together. And he was like, okay, I just wanted to check. And then when I actually had a new artist and I was ready to go, I was really nervous. I contacted him again. I'm like, are you still interested in doing this thing? Expecting that I would have to repitch it or whatever. And he's like, no, it's cool. Let's, you know, let's, when do you want to solicit it? And I was like, when do you want me to solicit it? And he goes, no, 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 this is creator own, man. You do whatever you want. And I was like, oh, oh, shit. This is, this is great and terrifying at the same time, you know? So, uh, and that, that was really, that and I knew I was going to need to bring everything to bear in terms of my own, you know, kind of knowledge about, okay, let's make sure this thing's on time. Because the good and the bad of it is, is that, you know, image is amazing and they'll tell you when your print deadline and everything else. But, you know, you, if you haven't scheduled your own book before, if you haven't figured out, hey, we're going to need these covers this many months in advance, you know, all that kind of stuff, you can, you can face plant pretty hard if you're not careful. So, sure. Thank, yeah, thankfully, we, you know, I kind of knew going in, okay, we're going to need this and, and we could just sort of run with it. And the other thing that was really helpful inadvertently was Edwin, the artist on Skull Kickers, he, um, well, the full series, not the short stories, but Edwin, he was graduating from uh, an art school in New York. And his first project after he graduated, actually, Skull Kickers number one technically was one of his final projects for school because I had hired him before he was done. And he had another final project he was supposed to do, but he told his teacher, I've been hired to do an image comic. And they were like, okay, just replace your project with that. So Fantastic. He was doing, yeah, he was doing pages in school. And I think the rest of his uh, friends were just like, holy crap. You know, like That's two wonderful. months after he graduates, he's going to have an image book on the stands. But that's, that's a cool I mean, teacher, though, man. That's a really yeah. that's a smart, cool teacher. Well, I've one of his teachers, so many stories teachers, to the contrary. Oh yeah, one of his teachers was Becky Cloonan. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so awesome, right? I was like, was Becky jokes of was, No, was it's it not the Hubert School. Um, I forget the name of the school. I want to say uh, I don't want to screw it up. Damn no worries, it. or Pratt, or Edwin's whatever. Gonna yeah, I'll me, Edwin's going to give me shit afterwards. Um, but uh, uh, no, it was so funny, right? So I hired him, and he had no. I mean, he'd been taught how to draw, and he had his storytelling chops, and he was pretty good. But he had no sort of idea of how, you know, communication or scheduling or all that stuff worked. So I broke him in and got to sort of – I'm not trying to say this to be mean, but, like, make him the perfect art art comic artist. Basically, like, here's how you do it. You must communicate. You must meet your deadlines. You must get reference. You must follow up. And so he, the first thing he learned was here's – the right way to do stuff. You know, when we're done skull kickers, if DC or Marvel don't hire him, they're fools because he is an unbelievably skilled, professional, eager, capable 
artist in every way. He is like the perfect comic artist in terms of professionalism and go-getter and does the work without complaint. Like he is just, he's a little art monster. And uh, I'm thankful in some ways that they don't realize that until we finish the damn book. But, you know, I, he is uh, just an incredible collaborator and I'm so simultaneously proud and honored to be working with him on the book because none of this would exist without his uh, hard work, you know? That's, that's excellent, man. No, and he, he is, his, his art is very dynamic. And uh, I, uh, as you're wrapping it up, and uh, jumping from, uh, I know it's uh, currently it's in the 30s, and the, the maze right. issue is is it, is it next month that uh, 100 comes out, or is it is it? On well, schedule? we're running a little bit late. I think it's going to come out in June, but it's okay. funny the book the book shipped on time perfectly, and our last issue will probably be late. So hilarious, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but whatever. What are they going to do? Issue, it's right. What are they going to yeah, do? Yeah. Kill it? Yeah, they're well, going to cancel it. It's not like it. Pla- it's not like planetary late back in the day. You know, right, it's right, like all right. So, so, Two and a half years later, here's that last issue. All right. Ta-da. Yeah, yeah. No, we're um, – uh, yeah, so what we're doing is we're doing this running gag. I mean the series has always been very, very tongue-in-cheek. And during the fourth story arc, we had this promotion we did where Marvel and DC were on a tear. You know, the new 52 had come out, and Marvel was doing – I think they'd announced their first round of big relaunch stuff. Marvel and I now. was just – yeah, and I was real tongue-in-cheek, and I wasn't getting work from either of them, so I thought, ah, whatever, I'll just make fun of them. You know, punch upwards, as you always do with sarcasm. <laughs> and so I basically said, we're going to relaunch Skull Kickers five times in five months, but we're not going to really relaunch it. We're just going to do the next issue in the series, but we'll just put a new number one on the cover and be all cheeky and put an uh, like an adjective with it. So we did the, the Uncanny Skull Kickers. We did uh, the Savage Skull Kickers. Uh, we did... Um, the all-new Secret Skull Kickers. We did all sorts of stuff like that, and people really dug it. And a lot of people dug in on the series that had never heard of it before because they were like, oh, these guys seem like brash assholes. Let's let's check this out. Um, and so people really loved that it, to the point where I, when we went back to our regular numbering, people were like, oh, I was really sad when you stopped doing number ones. I was like, geez, I thought we would just you know, beat that horse to death, but uh, people really liked it. So I thought, you know, it's the end of the series anyways. And Marvel and DC, well, Marvel particularly does this thing where they'll <laughs> add up all the previous issues and turn it into some, you know, like they just did, what yep. was it, Deadpool 250 or something? Like they just, every mini series and annual oh, yeah. and, mini, you know, just turn it into this number so they can throw a fat number on the front. And I said, well, if it's just about throwing a number on the front, then I can do that. I'll just say it's Skull Kickers 100 because that's a big number. <laughs> and, you know, I, uh, when when we did the new number ones, Stevenson, uh, he was really worried. He thought it would hurt us. He thought it would be a problem. And we sort of proved that it would work. And then uh, when hey, I pitched some, him the some... – some store owners do not have a sense of humor, so I can't well, appreciate Well, I, th- I think Steventon was also like, Diamond's going to have, a, you know, an aneurysm because they're going to have all <laughs> new line items, and they're in different alphabetical order, and they're just all over the place. Like, I get it, but I was sort of like, ah, we need to do something scrappy to get our name out there. And so, but when I pitched on the 100, I was just like, hey, so we're going to put a 100 on the cover because it's a three-digit number, and it makes me laugh. And uh, in the press release, I'm going to say, so few image books have ever had an image 100. You know, Skull Kickers is in this rarefied air. And he's like, yeah, okay. You know, now <laughs> that was that was it. We were, I was like, I guess we're doing it. Holy crap. So, uh, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, it's been totally fun. And as you said, and I've I've read you talk about it in other interviews and stuff that yeah, you just kind of obviously feel it's time to wrap it up. I, I've 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 been asking this question of a lot of people that have started their creator and books had very good success, but are mm-hmm. you know uh, what I keep saying is the days of and these are Vertigo books, but you know Hundred Bullets and and uh, Scalped and you know over fifty issue runs. Oh, I just yeah. don't. I don't think that's a viable model anymore. I really do think it's much kind of more difficult. Yeah. I, I mean, there's books that will be able to outlast that your saga or your, your sure. sex criminals. They've, they've got the juice. They're going to be able to go we'll as see. long as they Man, I go. Love sex. Yeah. We'll see. And I love Chip and Matt and I like sex criminals. We'll see if it can go that. And if they even have that kind well, of, Well, but that's the thing, but it could, I think in terms of the readership and the excitement for it. But, but the thing is, is that first of all, uh, once we decided, so originally skull kickers was going to be a mini series. But um, once we realized we were in good enough shape, we could keep it going. The minute we started doing, like, planning the second arc, I was like, okay, I need a, a long-term plan. I can't just mindlessly keep this going. As stupid, okay. and, you know, the series is a, a comedy, I didn't, sure. I wanted to have a plan regardless. And so we kind of, uh, I came up with a broader structure for it, and I said, okay, I can end it in four arcs, or we can end it in six arcs. And our fourth arc, we did that reboot joke and our numbers bounced a bit and I was like, okay, I'm feeling chuffed. I think we can do six. Uh, you know, so we we're this has kind of been the plan since probably 2011. Okay. Maybe mid 2011. So, um, you know, the, we knew we were going to be ending it at this point anyways. Uh, it took actually a little longer than I had hoped. I was hoping that we'd be able to release more than one arc a year for the last two years, but Things have been very, very busy for Edwin, and things have been very busy for me in a good way. Lots of freelance writing. And the, the series uh, does better in trade paperback than it does in single issues. So it was something where it. we would kind of dip into the red financially, and then we would bounce back on what are called accruals, where we would get our digital and our trade paperback sort of sales money. So it was both a financial and kind of a, a schedule thing where it took us a little bit longer to get to the ending. But we're here now, and you know I'm super pumped to have this body of work and it's without trying to sound corny, it's changed my life because I went from someone who, you know, wanted to tell stories to someone who is, who is telling stories and has had the great fortune to work for pretty much all the big comic book publishers in North America over the last five years. And all of that is thanks to the visibility that came from skull kickers and the work and people enjoying it and getting to know me as a creator uh, and, and trusting in me, you know, to do stuff for them. So I've done work for Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, IDW, Dynamite, Dynamite. you know, Udon, and, mm-hmm. and and in many cases, some a lot of them simultaneously. You know, there was one point last year where I was writing six books a month while I had my day job. You know, uh, it was it was getting to Charles Soul level. It was getting crazy. You know, it was, uh, it was, it was and Colin Bunn. Colin Bunn is like yeah. that too. Yeah, totally. Really? Those guys are both good friends of mine, and we joke about that a lot. <laughs> They're like, oh, so you're the Canadian Charles Soule. I'm like, no, Charles is the American me. That's how we do this. You know? <laughs> so, or whatever. We just joke back and forth about that kind of stuff about productivity and, and cranking it out. But, you know, um, it's been a pure joy, like, to work on so many different things and to, to be able to put my stamp on stuff and, and hopefully, you know, deliver something that people are enjoying, you know, time and time again. And so... I'm I'm really excited about the future, and I'm excited about putting this chapter 
to bed and saying, okay, I did that. Skull Kickers is this thing I'm incredibly proud of. And then, you know, build off of that with new things, create our own and hopefully new, you know, work for hire stuff coming down the pipe as well. Would you want to do, and do you think, is there demand uh, within your audience for like a Skull Kickers omnibus, a big fat volume? Yeah, I mean, it's expensive, you know, but yeah, you know, oh, yeah, I, totally. I, you know, I don't I know. Think, and, yeah, I think what we want to do is so we've got a deluxe hardcover that has two soft covers plus extra material in the back, and that's called the Treasure Trove Edition. And so, because we've got six arcs total, and there's two per, it's a trilogy of hardcovers when we're all done, and that's going to be a really cool format. And I think what we'll do is we'll probably let those sell through, and if they ever sell, they go out of print. Then we'll see if there's demand there, and then do like a you know, Skull Kicker's Gut Buster or something like some giant, yeah, yeah. you know, badass. But I don't want to, you know, rush that out. I think it's something where I, I really like the Treasure Troves and I think they look great. And uh, they're kind of my preferred format in terms of the way the look, the, the book looks and the, and the back matter and all that. So I'm focused on, on getting that out the door and then we'll see how they sell over the long term, you know, and, and down the way, you know, hopefully – if my career keeps going, then it'll be even easier to sell an omnibus later because people will want to read some of my older work at some point down the line as well, you know? Absolutely. No, I, I saw that with Bendis and continue to, and Rick Remender's another good example of that, so I don't blame you. I think that's terrific. And, and yeah, no, you. I, I was curious just from an economics and as a creator, I, I've rarely asked that question in terms of, you know, yeah, if collecting beyond the trades – you know, what's, yeah. what are the you know logical steps and everything. So, well, and that's that sounds- an, an image you're investing in yourself, right? So that right. print bill, you know, that you've got to match that before you're going to start making money on it. And with those omnibuses, they're expensive to print. They, they're a big, you know, list price as well. So you can make some good money if you get a good print run, but it's not a guaranteed, you know, sale at sure. the door. Sure. So and you don't want to have a lot of competing formats out there if you're going to try and sell that big fat deluxe kind of thing so again that's sort of the business side of the the thing i think some people you know they they assume well okay there's going to be demand just because it exists and you're like not always you know you got to kind of gauge what's available and look at what's in stock at diamond and it's a business it's not just about you know the fanish quality to it was it on your blog because you really kind of go into detail about um as an image creator and stuff, I really thought it's a really good essay, and I and I urge people Thank to you. go check it out. No, no, no lie, man. Uh, oh, I appreciate it. Was. Well, no, and I and I think I really think it's important to kind of open the hood sometimes and show people the engine uh, because ultimately, you know, it's their own talent that's going to you know and and tenacity that will right. determine whether they can you know succeed or not at doing this. So well, it's, there was a it's, big. Yeah. There was, when, when, when I released that article, there was like a big kerfuffle about it and people were talking about it positively and negatively. There were people who were like, holy crap, I can't believe, you know, you don't make as much money as I thought you would or whatever. And there were other people on the other side of the coin who were, I think, sort of dismayed about their own dreams of getting into comics and making big money. And I was sort of like, look, I'm not trying to stop anyone. In, in It's quite the opposite. If you're coming into this business and you want to create things – you need to come in with your eyes open. You need to know what the possibilities are. And yes, you might have a huge hit and you might be rolling in dough, but you sure as hell shouldn't expect that uh, right from the get-go, let alone at any point. And here's the realities of how this stuff can go, particularly in, if you're in the lower print range. Uh, you know, and, 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 and it was never a, a negative thing about image. It was just honest. You know, image 
is all about control. That's why the company was formed. That's why they exist was because those creators wanted to, you know, control their destinies with their own properties that they chose to to publish. And the same thing still holds true in many ways more so in this market where you can really put out such a diverse amount of, of comics. And so, um, you know, I have nothing but the absolute respect for Image, and there's a damn good reason why Wayward, my new creator-owned series, is through Image, because we have absolute control, and we do the book the way we want, when we want, and we reap the benefit of it. But that's only if there's a benefit to be reaped. You know, if the bills all come in and, and that eats up the profitability, then that's the reality of it, you know? And, and just being honest about that stuff rather than pretending that it's going to be, you know, perfect just instant. because, yeah, instant right. fame, instant money or instant whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, and, I hear you, you know, Go on. I, but so I, but I got tons of tons and tons of communication from people. A lot of people who want to break into comics, but other image creators who just email me out of the blue and they're like, "Man, I, you know, I'm really shocked you said that publicly because you know there are months when it wasn't good, and I I feel like I've got to constantly be saying that it's good because you don't want to sound like you're not successful." And I'm like, "Well, look, you know, that's I I'm not going to like open up my tax return for you, but at the same token, I don't think it's wrong to tell people." Hey, sometimes there are lean months and sometimes there are good times. And when, you know, things are really good, I brag about that as well. Like, so Wayward has had an incredible launch and we're doing very, very well. And particularly when I think about the fact that, you know, I don't have that kind of pedigree of, of a long run on a Marvel book or a DC book that I'm bringing that audience over. But we launched in that same kind of space. Like we were getting really good launch numbers for Wayward, you know, uh, not to like toot our own horn too much, but in the kind of realm where you got your Remender or your, you know, Warren Ellis or stuff like that. And that was because we built up a, what I think is a really great book and it was visually very compelling and it had a good pitch and it was, you know, we got a lot of press and, and just made that work because image is in such a different space now. Thanks to people like Kirkman, thanks to people like Brian K. Vaughn and, and Matt Fraction and then on top of that, thanks to the fact that my career is in a different place than it was, you know, five years ago. And so I just wanted to be honest about that as well. So I did an economic post that said, hey, Wayward is much more successful than Skull Kickers. Here's why I think that is. And here's the changing kind of face of creating your own comics. So it's not just about, oh, woe is me, you know, nail my wrist to my forehead. Everything's going to fall apart. And that was the original post wasn't about that either. It was never like oh, feel bad for me. It was just, hey, let's, you know, let's be honest about this stuff. And hopefully if you're going into comics, you understand that you got a plan. You know, my dad would always put it and say, you know, uh, uh, plan for the worst and hope for the best, you know. Sure. Absolutely. No. And that's the thing. Being clear headed about it, understanding where the market is and where your book fits into it. And like you say, that there's going to be lean months and there's going to be good months. Learning the hard way sometimes, as I say, too, where you know you don't want to keep going on a book that has hit the ceiling, and it's right. like, all right, you know, time to wrap it up. You know, I mean, and that's well, and, and, and that's what's the- funny is Skull, Skull Kickers in in a lot of ways financially has been sort of on the cusp for quite a while. You know, if we yeah. launch now, it would be such a different book. But we launched, like, we launched, you know, uh, I think within a month or two of Morning Glories, and that was sort of one of those two and Morning Glories where those books people were like, "Hey, Image is doing some interesting stuff again," you know. Absolutely. So we were in that kind of, "Hey, Image is worth sampling again" kind of spot rather than the current, "Oh, it's a new Image number one. We got to order big in case," 
you know, so we were part of that kind of, I, and I'm not trying to take credit for any of this. I'm just saying that in terms of the market changing and people starting well, to get no, excited a, about creative wave, again. No, right. Yeah. That was a very specific creative wave of, and, and it predated the saga uh, criminal, right, right. sex criminal. And so we didn't, wave. you know, the numbers that I got for the launch, I mean, at the time, I was a complete unknown. You know, yes, I'd done a webcomic and yes, I'd worked for Udon, but I worked, you know, behind the scenes. And so great. My friends are excited. I've got an image book coming about, but no one knew who I was really. And even still our launch numbers at that point were, you know, pretty good. Like we felt really good about it because we thought shit, no one knows who we are and we're bringing this book out and there's some buzz going on. Not, you know, we sold out of the first printing very quickly and we did three printings of the first issue, which for us was mind-bending. And, uh, you know, we got some good buzz going for that book uh, early on. But that being said, those numbers compared to what now Image Books launch at and what the market is capable of bearing, it's just like night and day. You know, if, if we got those same numbers now for an Image launch book, I would just be crying like, oh, my God, what did we do wrong? You know, but at the time, it was just a different market and a different different point in my career too in these five years though i'm assuming that you have reached out to more retailers and and oh, you're, yeah. you're i mean and that's talk to me about that communicating to stores and and how i mean i know that's really important but really you know like you know in these five years what have you learned and what what do you do now that you weren't doing back at the beginning? well i think that's been that's been a huge changeover where you know, I, I learned a lot about publishing when I was at Udon. I learned a lot right. about marketing, but a lot of that was like marketing to readers and fans. I didn't okay. know that much about the retail end of things or what retailers are looking for or how they decide how they're going to order books and all that kind of stuff. And so I had a lot to learn on that front uh, in a good way. And so over the last five years, it's really about not only building up relationships with retailers, but also getting a better feel for what kinds of things they want to see. And I'm not trying to cater a book. Like I'm not trying to, to trend, you know, hump or whatever, but, but, yeah. but just being honest about, is this a marketable concept as opposed to, you know, just vanity throwing something out there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so without any, you know, without any proof of concept, absolutely. Right. Exactly. And so, or even if it's a good idea, how you explain it to retailers in a way that will get them excited about selling it or ordering it or, or getting their customers to want to order it. And, and that's all stuff that I really needed to learn about. And so doing store signings and asking them constantly about what they're doing or talking to retailers at conventions and just sort of being like, is the book doing well for you? What, you know, like, what can I do or what is, what do you need to know in order to, to sell this book? And that was just a slow kind of buildup of information and, and feeling and also having some retailers throw their support behind it. And then as I started to get other work for hire projects, as I'm doing like, um, you know, Samurai Jack or I'm doing the, uh, uh-huh. the Dungeons and Dragons book. I'm doing oh, yeah. well, Conan or Pathfinder. So, so now yes. they've got so many other ways that they can attach people. They go, oh, you like that Figment book? Well, Jim's got a new project coming. Oh, you like this thing that he did? You know, oh, he did, you know, two chapters of Legends of the Dark Knight. Well, if you like that, you might like this. And so it's both my career being in a different spot where I can, someone can say, oh, it's a Jim's Up book, whatever that means, or, or they're excited about me as a creator. And on top of that, I'm better at communicating with retailers. Like I have, um, one of the things I learned very early on is 
although Image has a press department and they're really good, they're also managing, you know, dozens and dozens of books. Certainly. Like no, no one is ever going to be as excited or on top of my shit as much as I am. Sure. And so uh, I've got my own press email list and I've got my own reviewer email list and I've got my own um, uh, retailer email list. And I follow up with them and talk to them about promotions or, you know, the retailer uh, variant covers that we did for Wayward, those were all set up by me because, you know, I had those relationships that I was in, in retailers both ways. They reached out to me and said they were interested in doing one even before I asked. And there were other retailers that I felt really strongly about. And I asked them if they'd be interested and we worked it out. So, you know, that kind of stuff that I can really hands on kind of control and, and build up hopefully extra excitement or build up orders or build up, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that was stuff that, you know, even if I had those contacts, no one would have paid any attention. I had no work, you know, I had no body of work that they could look to, to when they're making their decisions. So. Sure. Last year when you uh, did the vari- the Phantom variant for Samurai Jack, right. did IDW do that with Larry's or did you, did you like seek that out? How did that happen? It was a little bit of both. Like, because once the book was announced, um, I sent out the press release through my press list and my retailer list. And it had a personal note about how, you know, we were putting all these extra touches into it. And we were working with Cartoon Network and Gendy Tartakovsky and, you know, just getting them extra excited because I could go into more detail than the announcement press release did. And Larry contacted me and basically said, oh, this looks so great. You know, do you think they'd be interested in doing a cover? And I said, well, that would be my, you know, yeah, I, I would love to set that up. And so I put him in touch with IDW and then, Larry was like, I want, you know, I know you illustrate, would you like to draw the cover? And I said, that would be my absolute pleasure. You know, I'd be honored. And we, we put together the concept for that Phantom cover. And so, and because that did well, that also made it easier. We did a, we did a Phantom cover for, you know, Wayward. I previously cool. done a cover with Larry's for uh, Skull Kickers. Like, you know, he's one of those retailers who's really on top of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I just did one recently for Wayward number six with, uh, Third Eye Comics, which is in Annapolis, Maryland, and they are, sure. they've become dear friends and supporters of everything I do. Uh, you know, those are the kinds of retailers you just, I can't even explain how valuable they are, because if someone is hand-selling your stuff, putting it in the best spot in the store, telling their customers, hey, this is something great, you're going to love this, it just makes all the difference. You know, it just puts it in their hands and gets them excited and it, it becomes uh, so much stronger at those particular locations. Very cool. Talk about Wayward. Tell people, because uh, you're still, are you on the second arc of Wayward right yeah, now? Yeah, we just you, started. So issue six came out a couple weeks ago, and that's our mm-hmm. the start of our second arc. Our first trade paperback is out, and it's part of Image's Value Price Trade Program. So it's 10 bucks for five issues of beautiful go. artwork wayward is uh the the log line is basically it's like buffy in japan so it's teenagers <laughs> fighting japanese mythological monsters on the streets of tokyo so it's not a manga it's an american comic but it, it happens to be set in japan and there's obviously because of the the supernatural nature there is aspects of things in the japanese history and culture that make their way into it but you know we're not playing with sort of anime tropes as much that's not really our kind of focal point we're not trying to do a poor man's manga we're really trying to do a cool japanese supernatural story 
And how did you choose your artist for it? Well, Steve and I work together at the Udon studio, actually. So okay. he, uh, he lives in Japan. He's raising a family there. He lives in Yokohama, which is just outside of Tokyo. And sure. um, we'd worked Yokohama on Yokohama Giants, of, man. Yokohama right? Giants, great, uh, great uh, baseball team. Absolutely. Go nice. on. Uh, he, um, so he's been living there for years, and, and he's been doing lots of uh, commercial work on both sides, so both in Japan for Japanese clients and also for American clients, uh, you know. He did some DC work back in the day. He did a Deadshot miniseries. Uh, I don't remember what year that would have been. Probably early. Oh, was that with uh, Chris with, with Chris Cage? Chris is, yeah, that that's the same Steve Cummings. And oh, he wouldn't. Oh, yeah, his of art course. looks totally different now. But um, and this is before he moved to Japan. He was still living in the U.S. And so um, he, we were doing work together, and we really got along well. And I'd been over to Japan a couple times on business trips for Udon. And we had just hung out and really got along well. And he was saying how he was kind of burning out on commercial work. And he really wanted to do something that he owned and had a stake in. And that was sort of the same kind of feeling I was having. And this was before Skull Kickers came out even. And, and I said, oh, man, I'd love to work with you someday. And then eventually I do Skull Kickers and I'm doing a bunch of commercial work. And he says, I was doing a bunch of freelance work and, you know, doing my creator owned. And he said, you know, Hey, do you want to, do you remember that conversation? Do you want to do something? And I said, if you do any time. And he basically said, well, I've got a gap in my schedule coming up. Now's a good time to sort of do or die. Like I do this or I go back to the grind of looking for more freelance. And so uh, we just started bouncing ideas back and forth. I had a bunch of different creator owned concepts. I was kind of developing uh, some of them really raw in terms of just story potential. And one of them was about, the way we see mythology in the modern world. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I assumed it was going to be this Eurocentric kind of mythology, but I, I didn't really have any kind of location specifically built for it. And he said that he really, really wanted to do a book set in Tokyo because he, well, the reason why is because he hates the way Tokyo is portrayed in most movies and in most media, because they just, they assume it's all like ninja temples or giant high rise buildings. <laughs> And he's like, the, the, you know, it's it's literally like every imagine New York was just the Statue of Liberty and, you know, Times Square. And there's absolutely nothing else in the entire city. Right. That's the way right. they treat, you know, Tokyo. Tokyo. And he said Hilarious. It's, it's, a, it's a living, breathing place and it's very complicated. And it's it's, you know, I want to show that I want it to be a character in a story. And I said, well, I wow. love Japanese mythology and I love. Uh, you know, the, the, what are called yokai, which are like the mythological monsters and spirits. And they're so interesting and they're very different from what we expect from our North American mythology. Uh, and I said, you know, I think that could be a really fertile ground for this bigger theme I have about myth. And so I started doing a bunch of research and, and, you know, drumming up more information on this stuff that I knew a little bit about. And he started doing design sketches and we sort of bandied back and forth and started putting this thing together as a proposal. Um, and this would have been, I had a full pitch ready by New York Comic Con 2013. And so I was going to take it to different publishers and see who would be the best fit. You know, um, I, image wasn't necessarily where it was going to end up. And it wasn't that I didn't even want it an image, but Steve financially wasn't sure he'd be able to hold out in terms of, you know, sure. waiting for payment for the book. And then on right top of that, 
on the, right. on the back end versus having to deal with a, a publisher. Certainly, go right. on. Right, and I had just done that new number ones relaunch thing, and Eric Stevenson is a, is a great guy, but I, like I said, he was not crazy about that thing, and I was sort of like, well, I think I spent my capital over an image doing this goofy new number ones. If okay. I pitch it, I don't think he'll... I don't think he'll spring for it. I think, you know, and and I was just my own neuroses. Like, sure. Maybe, maybe they don't like me anymore. Cause I'm kind of a troublemaking dink, you know, doing these weird <laughs> things with number ones. And like, I was just super like any creator will tell you if they're being honest, you know, their, your ego fluctuates really wildly at like, times. Yeah, everyone's, everyone's self-conscious and, and thinks the worst of themselves. And that, Oh sure. my God, person X must hate me. And then it's like, right, right. I barely even think it about you, man. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Right? But but so I was just like, well, okay, so I can't – image is just not going to happen. So I took it to a bunch of different publishers. And I don't want to say exactly who because I don't think that's fair to them considering that it didn't end up happening. But um, almost every publisher I took it to responded unbelievably enthusiastic. Like they wanted the book. And so we had four offers for the book. Uh, by the time, uh, you know, a few weeks after the show and I was able to sit down with some of the contracts and compare them side by side. And I sat down with my lawyer and we went over some stuff and he was surprised that image wasn't one of the options. And we were sort of talking back and forth and he was like, well, have you pitched them? And I said, no. And he goes, well, maybe you should do that. And we're good enough friends that he was like, look, just just do that and then come back to me and we'll have all the, you know, we'll know for sure. Cause it, sure. what's the worst thing they can say is no. And then you'll know that it's not happening there. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. And so I pitched it to image and it was honestly the fastest response I've ever got from them about anything. Um, they turned around an email that day and said, yeah, let's do it. And so we just hunkered down and found a way to make it all work. And, and, uh, we were doing it at image and that was really, to be honest, it was really unexpected uh, for me because I knew that image was on this incredible tear and they had their kind of pick and choice of these, you know, Marvel and DC creators launching new books through them. And so I thought I'm still really small fry. I'm not going to be able to compete. And we had a, we had a new book. So, you know um, at that point it was just about when are we going to release it and how can we make the biggest splash possible? That's great. What do you think it is? And I don't mean to generalize about you know the, the the setting of Japan, but I know that manga specifically, you know, kind of hit its peak about five years ago. And mm-hmm. and you know, certainly there seems to be a pullback in the bookstores and and in the comic stores and stuff. So how would you gauge the audience fascination with, if you can, with I, you know, I, you know, without trying to sound too. And really, by the way, here's a Canadian and an American talking about this, but you right, know, we're, right. we are talking we are talking about the North American markets interested yeah, in yeah. Japan. So I guess that's okay. No, but, Go on. <laughs> but the reality though is that I think it wasn't so much that that manga took a dive so much as it took a market correction. The manga boom was really inflated and crazy and wasn't sustainable. And okay. both the, the bookstores and the retailers, they were it was a, like a miniaturized version of, of kind of the, the comics the during the 90s where they Absolutely. were just ordering everything and everything was selling. So you just order more of it and you order more of it and you order more of it and you're not being 
careful about what you're ordering yeah. and you're not sure. looking at the actual quality of it. And here was the reality is that the manga market was also had their their choice of decades worth of amazing material. Imagine there's a country that has no American comics. They've never had American right. comics before. And the first stuff that gets translated is like fucking Watchmen and, you know, Bone and The Walking Dead and Lock and Key. And you're like, every American comic is fucking brilliant. <laughs> and so they start ordering this stuff like it's never going to not sell because right. every book is a home run. But you're, you know, hey, what's our next book? Oh, this little thing called Sandman or whatever. Like, if you just had hit after hit after hit, I mean, so you think about Akira and Ghost in the Shell and, you know, all these titles right. that are massive, Absolutely, massive, yeah. they're massive hits in Japan for a reason. They're cultural <laughs> and they're powerful and they're amazing. And those are the books that you're leading with. And so the whole market is just like, holy shit, this stuff is gold. Everything sells. And by the time you get to, and I'm not going to say an American title because I don't want to insult anyone. <laughs> by the time you get to your your other stuff, the market has, it's saturated and, you know, people move on. But that doesn't mean that there's not good material or that manga is not viable or that the market's not real. Yeah. It just means yeah. that it's far more realistic now. The books sell kind of what they should sell now that you've, knocked out all the top titles you know what i mean I so do. you know one one piece still does really well and naruto still Certainly. does really well because Certainly. those are hit books and they're hit books in japan and they have a, a thriving audience but just you know catch all random manga is not going to sell the kinds of numbers that they were during the boom and that's all there is to it so i don't think it's a matter of that's a long explanation but i don't think it's a matter of the market that people aren't interested in Japan or they're not interested in manga. I think that they are now realistic. Like the market is now real and stable, you know, in a way that it sells the numbers that it can in a sustained way based on the amount of product. You know what I mean? I do. I do. So, uh, you know, as you say, the start, you're starting the second arc now of wayward and, uh, yeah. So uh, what? Uh, yeah, I don't know what what else you'd want to say about it. I mean, we, we've we've hit the plot. Well, it's, yeah, no, it's it's an amazing uh, experience because we had a great response to the first arc. We one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to create a book that wasn't you didn't have to know anything about Japan to dig into it. And if you know Japan and you know the culture, you may find more in there. But uh, the main character of the first story arc is this girl Rory she's half Japanese and she's moving to Japan for the first time. She grew up, she learned the language from her mother. She's seen photographs. You know, she has a lot of pride for her, you know, her heritage, but she's never actually lived there. And what that gave us was a touchstone character, someone that the readers sure. could empathize with. And as she finds out things about the country or is sort of thrown off guard, you're thrown off guard because you're being given new information about stuff. And it doesn't just feel like info dumps because it's things that she needs to know. It's very structurally part of the, you know, the way that I built the story. Right. Sure, sure, sure. And, no, it's good. and so it gave us sort of the best of both worlds because we were able to bring people in the door who love Japan and are fascinated by anything Japanese in terms of history or monsters or, or culture. But it also allows me to pitch it to someone and say, you don't have to be an anime fan. You don't have to be into manga. You don't have to know anything about Japan you're going to find out as she finds out. And it's just a really good 
action drama mystery kind of story where you've got this character, you know, discovering her sort of heritage in terms of supernatural stuff and these monsters are after her and she's in a new place and she's trying to carve out a new life for herself while she's under this tremendous amount of pressure and, and, and being hunted by supernatural monsters. So it's got that, you know, like I said, the Buffy kind of feel to it. And so I think what I'm really proud of is the fact we, we were able to sort of strike that really tenuous middle path and we can make something that's appealing to anime and manga fans. But if you're not into that stuff, I swear to you, you're going to enjoy this. The art is, you know, solid and the storytelling's there and it's just a strong story rather than it being like it's, you know, playing kind of inside baseball with Japanese stuff. That's cool. Is, uh, I mean, you know, and again, you're making a comic book first and foremost, but it sounds like mm-hmm. the kind of pitch that would work in other media as well. Yeah. You know, I think probably the toughest thing about pitching it would be the fact that the vast majority of the cast are Japanese in Japan. And so, you know, I, I don't know if a Hollywood producer would look at it and they go, the first thing that goes, oh, this is great. Let's put it in New York, you know, like, <laughs> but, you know, the, I, I don't know. I don't know how that would sort of work. I think I think the the, the culture is sort of changing. You look and mm-hmm. see now that there's a lot more diversity in terms of the type of casting that they're doing or the locations that they're playing with. So I Absolutely. think it's possible, but it's not something that I went in thinking about. I wasn't going to sure. worry about, you know, because otherwise that we would set it in some, you know, Hollywood or some sort of city where that's where they would dive on it. Uh, you know, I just want to tell a cool story and Steve wanted to put it in Tokyo. And I, the more I read and the more research I did, the more excited I was about that possibility too. And so that was kind of, first and foremost, that's what we're doing is trying to put together a really cool story uh, where, you know, rather than worrying about, Oh man, I bet you they'll make a TV show. Oh, sure, sure, sure. No, no, no. I'm hip. But like, do you see, do you have like a finite, 30 issue story in mind. I mean, you know, just like skull kickers in terms of, you know, four, four yeah. arcs. So we've got a, we've literally got like a four arc or a six arc kind of plan. If the okay. book really blows out in a, in a big way and builds a bigger readership, a very stable one, you know, there's sort of different image books in the sense that you can get an image book that it launches strong and then it just slowly kind of sales start yeah. to drop off and eventually yeah. get a point of profitability. You've got books that, um, you know, they they're gangbusters and they build a really stable readership stuff like your chew or your invincible. It just seems like this unstoppable bedrock of a readership. And obviously that would be pretty ideal if we were able to build a readership that just sticks around and wants to read it month in and month out, you know, then I, I could see us extending it a little bit longer, but mm-hmm. I don't want to overextend and I don't want to put us right. in a situation, you know, financially. So I'm sort of looking at it and going, okay, I know what the big story is. Uh, we can go into more depth if I have the room to do so, but all the pieces are still going to be put into play and everything's going to pay off thematically no matter when we wrap it up. So, okay. Very yeah. cool, man. Well, now let me ask about Samurai Jack because um, sure. that's, that is wrapping up as well. Yes. Yeah, that wraps up. Sorry. And I was gonna, I, no, I was going to ask for the distinction in terms of um, is you know is it wrapping up and someone else is going to do a Samurai Jack book or is this this the end of the license? No, this is the end of the license. So yeah, okay. the um, the book was originally supposed to be a five issue miniseries, uh, and we sold Damn. really well out of the gate, and we've gotten twenty issues out of this five issue yeah. mini. So I I feel very very proud of that. We came in, 
you know, um, from what I was told, they had, I think, seven different writers that pitched to do the continuation of Jack. And mine was the one that Cartoon Network and Gendy Tartakovsky and everyone sort of picked and said, this is the one we're going to go with. Um, and mine was the last pitch that they accepted. So uh, the uh, Carlos Guzman, the editor, he contacted me. At a, we were talking about another project that ended up falling through. And he said, oh, we might be doing Samurai Jack. Do you remember that show? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm a huge fan. Animation no crazy. What a great show. Yeah, uh, yeah, phenomenal, yeah. Right? And he said, yeah, do absolutely. you have any interest in this? And I said, oh, my God, I'm crazy about it. He goes, well, I need a pitch on Monday. And this is like Friday kind of deal. And I went, oh, God, okay. And I watched some of my favorite episodes and just sort of tried to marinate myself in it. And then I just <laughs> wrote this pitch in a couple hours and said, here's what I do. If you like it, then I'm the guy to do it this way. If not, then, well, it was fun pitching. Thanks for the opportunity. And they came back and they said, let's do it. And so we did that first arc and, and there was a really great response from fans of the show and from comic shops and so we got extended almost immediately and they kept extending us in little five issue chunks so they would say okay we're gonna do 10 issues i'm like great and then okay we're gonna do 15 okay awesome and then you know 20 oh perfect and then i think it was funny because just as they told us we were doing 20 i thought we're gonna be around forever and then you know i go 25 and they go nah we're done (laughs) okay i can't really complain we've had an amazing (laughs) run and and, yeah it's been awesome so um, working with Andy Suriano, he was one of the designers of the show. So Makes he sense. still works in animation. And, well, and the funny thing is, from what I heard, he they didn't have an artist lined up for the series. They'd already lined, you know, they were already sort of lining everything else up. And he approached them. He heard that they had the license. And he was like, look, Samurai Jack was the first project I did as, an, as a professional. I still have a lot of love for this property. I would love to be involved. And they said, how involved? Like doing a cover? And he's like, no, I'd I'd friggin' draw the thing. And they're like, yeah, I think the character designer of Jack on the book would be pretty great. So he was, uh, you know, having him on board was really surreal because we, one of the things in my pitch, and apparently this was one of the things that really helped mine stand out, was um, that I said that we should not just refer to the past, that we should not just do, like, greatest hits kind of shit where you're just, remember that character? Okay, they're back again. Remember that thing we did before in the show? We're doing it again because I think that's what a lot of the licensed books can fall into as a trap where you're like doing what people already liked about the thing. And I said, the reason why Jack was such a good show was because they always did something different. They always moved ahead and they always created new stuff. He would never stay in the same location. He would never fight the same other than a coup, uh, you know, and a couple (laughs) characters, he would never fight the same people. There was different villains and different challenges. And I said, if we want to set ourselves apart, the first thing we have to do is, not look back. We got to make all sorts of new cool shit. And so they totally agreed. And then I had the designer of Samurai Jack and I would say, Hey, what about this crazy thing? And he'd go cool. And he would sketch it up and I'd feel really guilty. Like, Oh my God, this guy is just taking the stuff from my brainstorming and turning it into amazing designs, you know? And so, I I mean, it's been a, just an absolute thrill. And Andy and I become dear friends. Um, And Phil Lamar, the voice actor of Jack uh, I got to meet him last year, and he told me how supportive he was and how thrilled oh, he was great. to read the book. Yeah, we have this thing we want to do. If we're, at a, if we're at a convention together, we want to do a live reading where Phil does Jack's voice and you reread that's through the comic. Idea. Oh, my yeah, God. That's so cool. 
That's tremendous. What was Gendy's uh, response to, to the book? Well, Gendy, uh, he's his crew, and he has to approve everything. So uh, they asked him okay. to do covers. So he actually did alt covers for the first five issues, and then he took a five-issue break, and then he did alt covers for the second, for 11 to 15. So he's been super supportive. He really, really Excellent. likes what we did with it and thrilled. And I keep joking around that, hey, you want to animate any of these? You know, just uh, don't don't hesitate, you know. You would love to see it come around. You know? That would be kind of the ultimate compliment. But um, and and so what we're doing with issue twenty. Once we found out we were ending it, and this is another weird, surreal sort of thing. So I realized, even though I was in my head was sort of like, okay, we can go on forever. I knew at some point we were going to run out of track. And I thought to myself, man, the story we did in eleven to fifteen was probably the most epic thing I could think of. What we did was we basically broke Jack's sword. And he had to get it reforged. And his sword was forged by these three gods. And they, it was this big storyline in the in the original show. But his dad was the one that forged the sword. Jack doesn't even know anything about that. And so we had him find out about how the sword was forged. And he has to basically meet the gods and be tested. Because the gods gave the sword to his father, not to him. So he hasn't, right. in some ways, earned it from them. Sure. But now he sure. had to earn it himself. And it was this big, epic storyline, like as big as we could make it, as crazy as we could make it. And we kind of like blew our wad. And I was like, yep, yeah, that's as big as we'll <laughs> ever get. And then I realized, oh, damn, we, we have to end this at some point. Like, how do we go, how do we go bigger? We've kind of done all we can do. And so I was really nervous about you know, the next time we were going to do a five-part story or we were going to do something, I was like, I'm out of juice. I don't even know how we can go bigger than the sword. And um, I was just walking to the local grocery store and just sort of rolling stuff around in my head. And I said, you know, we don't need to go bigger. We need to go more poignant. Like what we need is an emotional ending, not a action ending. And so I had this idea for how we could wrap it all up and how we could essentially, if they never do any more animation – this is sort of a coda on the series and what it's all about and what it means and who's the last Jack is essentially the last Jack story. And I, I felt really good about it, but I was like, man, that's really cocky to, for me to basically (laughs) say, I think I've got the last Samurai Jack story and, but still leave it just open enough that if they decide to do more animation, we could, you could still make it work. It would hold, but you know, so anyways, I pitched this thing. I basically said to, to Carlos, I said, you know, um, we should talk next week. And he's like, okay. And then he calls me and he says, oh, by the way, we have to wrap up the series. And I said, well, I was going to call you and tell you how we could wrap up the series. So I guess it's fate. You know, this is the story I want to do. And I just verbally pitched over the phone. And he was really quiet for a second. Then he goes, dude, that's that's it. That's the way it should go. And I'm like, yeah, it's great that we think so. But do you think they're going to think so? And he goes, only one yeah. way to find out. And so I pitched it, and they were very enthusiastic. They really, really liked it. And That's so uh, we just proofed it, you know, this week. Uh, Andy drew the shit out of it. It is, uh, it is something really special, and I don't mind saying. So I'm really hopeful that the fans enjoy it as much as we've enjoyed putting it together and that they feel that we do the series, you know, justice all the way to the end. So uh, it's a really, yeah. I feel like it, you know, I'm, I'm sad that the, the project is ending and I could easily keep going, you know, but I feel like we're going out big and we're going out epic and we're saying what we want to say in a really cool way. So 
Wonderful, Matt. That's that's really cool. And I know, obviously, you can draw uh, Jack and people can get a sketch yeah. from you. Does, does yeah. Andy do conventions as well? Oh, my God. Andy does conventions. He's also the fastest convention artist I've ever seen. I don't draw in front of him if I can all help it because he's a, <laughs> he's a monster. He's like – he's so fast. It's insane. He does Jack sketches so quickly. I mean, but th- this was even when he's drawing the comic. So he still has his day job. He works for Walt Disney doing uh, design for them. So I don't know if you've seen those new Mickey Mouse shorts that they've been playing on YouTube and stuff. But he's the designer on that. While he was working on one of his issues of Samurai Jack, he won an Emmy for his work on Mickey Mouse. And he's still you know, wow. doing the comics in the evening. And he just cranks them out because he's so quick and so you know skilled. But then we did a convention together. The first time we did a show together... And he would just do these sketches in like a minute and they look amazing or like he spends five minutes on it. And it's just like a full illustration. I couldn't even believe how incredible they look. Uh, at one point, uh, Brandman Bigglesworth, she's a, uh, the, the um, accountant at image and they're good friends. Okay. Her and Andy, she comes by and she shot a vine. You know what a vine is? One of those Absolutely. 12, Short video. 12 second videos. They're 12 seconds. Yeah. He did a sketch. <laughs> in 12 seconds and it's jack like it's not a crappy sketch and it, he actually did it in 11 seconds because in the last second of the video he drops the pencil on the table <laughs> and it's still and up that's fantastic. yeah we were just like what the fuck who are you you're a mutant right you know that's yeah excellent. he's he's amazing i love doing shows with andy we want to do more but once especially once the series is all in trade you know we want to be at some more shows and hang out. I mean, he was the nicest guy to me. The first uh, show we did together, I was super nervous because I just feel like, you know, he's part of the original production team for Jack. Sure. And I'm this interloper telling my stories, you know, <laughs> of his, the thing that he's been a part of since the beginning. And we were talking a bit about that and how nervous I was. And he told me the best story. He said, you know, uh, I, I contacted them as soon as they announced they had the license at IDW and I told them I wanted to do the series. You know, I wanted to be involved and I wanted to draw. And they said, okay. And then when Gendy was and Cartoon Network were getting involved, they're like, oh, Andy's interested? Great. So they sent him all the pitches. So he was one of the people that made the decision about who would actually be writing it. And he said, do you know who you were up against? And I said, no, I, I mean, I don't know any of the other writers who pitched. And he goes, well, one of those writers was Andy Suriano. I said, you put in a pitch? He said, yeah, it was really, I, you know, I thought it was kind of unfair because I was one of the people looking at the pitches and then I put in my own pitch. I'm not, isn't that terrible? I'm like, oh, my God. And I go, so how did I get the gig? And he goes, well, your story was better. Wow. And I went, dude. And he, and he was just like, no, it was. I really wanted to draw it. I read it and I was super excited. And uh, you're part of the family now, so don't feel bad. Wow. And I was just like, oh, my God. For the rest of the show, I was like this weird, nervous, excited mess. You know, that's fantastic, yeah, man. So no, that's cool. well, no, honestly, um, I, I really enjoyed the comic and I think it is so oh, great. And, absolutely. And I and uh, yeah, I, I really thought the whole the whole thing. It reminded me in the best way of and you're going to, you know, people are like, oh, fuck you. But really, <laughs> when it was coming out, the Alex Toth Super Friends, because when the oh, Alex Toth Super Friends were coming out, I had no concept of who Alex Toth was. I was right. a 12 year old kid 
reading it's just this like comic. the cartoon right exactly exactly and that's the thing and that was more than enough and it was like that's wonderful and then and then there was that because it was in one of those big uh treasury edition dc collections that's how i first right. read friends and there was a feature in it that said oh alex toth was you know uh did the did the cartoon stuff and say oh this makes sense okay cool la 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 right. i have no idea that this is you know the, the Bravo, deal. you know, yeah, exactly. Bravo, and uh, I forget uh, the character he did with um, Bernay, or was right. it? No, was it, was it Toth and Bernay? Yeah, it was Torpedo. Yeah, 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 Torpedo. yeah, yeah. So no, I hadn't, you know, no, or the Black Canary stuff, or a million other great things. I yeah, mean, yeah, this guy's an crazy. absolute. Yeah, he's you know a master. Yeah, right? but that's the thing, Andy. You know, Andy, Andy, obviously being part of the show and everything. No, it's it's great to see that experience captured in comics. It really is. Well, and that's the thing is that we never wanted it to feel like a you know like an also ran. We wanted right. it to feel like the best, a, a fifth season that you never had a chance to see. You know, yep. trapped on the page, and and you know, and and some of the things that I love most about the show was that they were really experimental. They would do weird storytelling things, or they would do weird visual things with animation Absolutely. that I hadn't yeah, seen before. And so right. I told Andy, I said, I want to do that with the comic. I want to do weird stuff with the page. I don't want it to feel like perfunctory. You know, I want to really do some strange stuff just like they would with the animation. And so there's one issue. Andy didn't end up drawing it because we had a couple of filling artists while he was working on the big epic storyline. But we had one issue where Jack gets pulled into a vortex and you have to rotate the comic as he's getting swirled around. <laughs> To read the story because I just felt like that's the kind of stuff you'd see on the screen. They would have done all sorts of weird, cool stuff. You know, we had another issue where we did like a silent, you know, issue. So there's no talking, which is appropriate because there was barely ever any talking Absolutely. in the show, anyways. Absolutely. But it was like, can we do a, a silent story? Is that have we got that in us? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it like this. You know, and and just trying to come up with different ways to sort of play with the form in the way that they played with the form, you know, on the show. No question, man. No, it's very cool. It, uh, are there three issues left or two issues? How many issues left? Um, there's well, there was a shipping I... problem, so IDW had that backup where all that stuff at the in the pier got trapped on those ships. Oh yes. No, yeah, I so, did hear about so that. Go on. The issues were sent out to press on time, but we had a delay on the release of sixteen. So uh, sixteen is now out. Seventeen will be out. No, wait, seventeen's out. Sorry. So 18 should have already been out, but it's now coming out this month. So we're basically okay, a month yeah. delayed. So right, the yes, last yes, issue will be June yeah, instead of instead of um, instead of May. Instead and of May, so, yeah. So yeah, 18, 19, yeah. 20 was what we got left. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so okay. uh, 18 is uh, Andy did it solo, so he wrote the story and drew it. Oh, wow. uh, he wanted to have one issue that was all him. And it was a story that he had one of the the one issue stories he had in his original pitch, and so I said, you know, please do it, especially if we're running out of out of track here. Um, <clears throat> and then nineteen is a is a is a you know like a one parter that we did that's just like a fun kind of throwback story with some of the characters that I really like from the show. And then twenty is this big coda. Um, there's an episode of the show. I think it's in the third season. And it's called Jack and the Traveling Creatures. And Jack fights this portal guardian, and they and and the portal guardian beats Jack. And that's one of those great things about the show. Jack doesn't always win. Sometimes he mm-hmm. only gets his ass kicked. Um, so he he, um, he he gets beaten, and the portal guardian is like, "You are not the man that can enter this portal." 
And then as Jack's body's getting dragged away by these creatures, you see this glimpse in the portal and we see Jack when he's a heck of a lot older and he looks like a warlord and he's wearing a crown. It's like King Conan versus young Conan. And yep. he basically says, not yet. And so it's this cool vision of the future who you know Jack might be and where his his future may lie. And so we, our story is in that future. Our story is that Jack. And we cool. get to, to tie that all back together to that original story. And whether or not you saw that episode, you'll understand that concept of it's been a long time and Jack has gone on many adventures and he's no longer just the wandering samurai he's you know done a lot of other things and so we get to play with a lot of those tropes like your king conan kind of stuff we Absolutely. get to, to build in a lot of sort of uh, emotional resonance with things that happened in the show and we also get to sort of glimpse in terms of the future that may yet be and that's all i'm going to sort of say about it but it uh it was a real trip to put together that's fantastic man no it's very cool and it reminds me not only of king conan but what uh, Jason Aaron just did in Thor before oh, the yeah, big stuff time. really started going, and yeah, yeah with you the know, God I, bomb no, and all that, yeah, yeah, that was totally yeah, cool. exactly, and and yeah, old Thor with you know the arm missing and really old and his so granddaughters awesome. and shit. Yep, no, um, I love it. Who's, King the, Conan who's too. the artist on that? The artist on those. Uh, was, is, um, it wasn't was it Assad, the Ribic or? Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know what? You know what's funny is I I wanted to say um, I almost said uh, Idris Elba, but that's the actor. <laughs> It's, that is, it's like sounds like that. Sounds like no, but is it, yeah, yeah. I think it's sounds, a rhythmic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is amazing. That artwork was so epic. Just gorgeous oh, stuff. I, I told him, I'm like, it's like if if heavy metal was publishing Thor. Yeah, that's really what it yeah, felt totally. like. No, it was excellent. Well, transitioning to as we spoke of King Conan to uh, Conan and Red Sonia and working with Gail Perfect. Simone. There you yeah, go. Well, well, you it know, was, it was an easy, easy, yeah, yeah easy segue, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it's been an incredible project to be a part of. Um, surprising no one. I'm a huge sword and sorcery nut. Grew up on all <laughs> that stuff. Dungeons and Dragons and Conan and, and the movies and the books and the, everything. And this so, is a good excuse to get all the Marvel black and white stuff from Dark Horse. Uh, given the well, I mean, and, and talking about, you know, full circle, right? Like my first comic gig right. that I was ever paid for is Conan. And then I get to work on Conan years and years later. Um, but yeah, you know, so, uh, Gail contacted me, um, and asked me if I'd be interested, Uh, you know, like I would say no. Uh, and (laughs) we started, you know, plugging away on it and coming up with, she had a few ideas already in mind in terms of the broader storyline. And she answered probably the hardest story question, which was which era were we going to play with? Like you got your young kind of, you know, troublemaking Conan, you've got your, you know, like the, the rogue. And then you've got right. your swashbuckler, and then you've got your warlord, and then you've got your king. And it's like, well, which yes. one's the one? If this is your only chance to write Conan, what do you do? And you're like, damn it, I don't want to choose. And so Gail came up with this brilliant way where we didn't have to choose. So we have a storyline that essentially spans time, spans generations, where um, you know something that Conan and Red Sonja do in their youth comes to roost later on in their careers and they have to pay the price for it. And uh, so it's this great story that you get the poignancy of, you know, that, that exact thing, the decisions you make when you're younger and you have to, you know, pay your debts. You have to make, you know, the mistakes that you make or the, the cockiness of youth, you know, versus the, the wisdom of age 
and and the the many battles that sort of wear you down over the years. And so we got to do something really cool and poignant on that front. And we also got to write them at different points in their life. So you get this really cool contrast between the two of them. Uh, You know, when they're younger, um, you know, Sonia is much more kind of uh, reserved and she's very angry and very uh, tough, but she's not very kind of boisterous and Conan is all brash and he's just, you know, big words and ball, you know, kicking like troublemaking fears. No one, no big deal. You know, he'll, he'll take on anyone for anything. Um, And then later in his career, you know, after he loses Belit and he has all these torturously terrible things happen to him, he is kind of more solemn and he is more careful and he is kind of the, the age is, you know, the, the things he's done are kind of wearing on him and she is much more brash and she is much more kind of uh, she, her. She's that much louder and confident. And so being able to play those two big legendary personalities against each other and being able to contrast them and, you know, show the way that they build up trust with each other and how yeah, the way that uh, Gail described it, and I thought it was really apt was she says, you know, you hear about the stories of Olympic athletes when they go to the Olympics and they're in the Olympic village and, and they, they start humping like bunnies, like everyone's because you're sure. around all these people who are like the greatest at what they do. And you're in the prime of your life. And yeah. when are you going to get this chance again? Kind of thing. And sure. she's like, these people are like legendary warriors and there's no one else like them. No one has the ego and the capabilities that they do. So there's going to be attraction there. But it's not even necessarily like a, a deep romantic attraction as much as it's just like a like a physical instinctive, you are a superior being like I am. We should totally hump. And I was like, <laughs> that's kind of a good way to think about their their kind of engagement is that there's like an almost an animal charisma to them because they're both operating on that level. And so we get to have a bit of the romantic stuff, but without it necessarily being like one of the characters has to be passive or one of the characters has to be subservient to the other. It's like they're both just kind of libidos. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they're like, like, they're they're like 19 year old kids that, you know, their first college uh, mixer and everything. I I get it. Absolutely. You're hot. You're you're battle hardened. Let's uh, (laughs) let's do some stuff. So, you know, we get to sort of play with these bigger ideas and and it all works together really well. We get to play with some of the biggest sort of uh, visual concepts. Like we both put together like a wish list. These are the things that exemplify Conan and Ritsanya to us. You know, these are the kinds of action sequences or wouldn't it be great if we had a fight on a ship or wouldn't it be great if so it's like we built these action set pieces and we built these big moments and then we sort of push them all together with this overplot. Uh, and so, it, it, you know, she, uh, Gail's other, I, the other thing she compared it to, she said, you know, remember the, the, the classic team-ups, you know, your Superman uh, versus Spider-Man or your, you know, Superman versus Muhammad Ali or those those kinds of ludicrous over-the-top crossover books that were like sure. an event. And she oh, yeah. goes, crossovers now, they're so obsessed with making them feel like, I don't know, like, like they're not a big deal anymore. And she said that we want this to be a big deal. We want this to feel like this is throwing everything against the wall, like it's the biggest, craziest thing we could come up with. And so this multi-generational story and this epic villainy and this huge threat. And, you know, uh, what I added to the whole thing was I said, you know, one of the things I loved about Conan was uh, 
um, Robert E. Howard, he was pen pals with H.P. Lovecraft. And so he got obsessed with sort of those creatures beyond our comprehension. And, you know, every so often Conan would fight something that would clearly be like Cthulian-esque kind of creatures that were like, just by looking at it, you'll go insane kind of stuff. And only because Conan is somewhere between courageous and idiotically, you know, (laughs) obtuse is he able to survive against this stuff. And I'm like, I love that. That's like one of my favorite things about Conan is that he, he doesn't just fight like other people. He doesn't fight like dragons. He fights like fucked up nether creatures from beyond reality. And she's like, yeah. And I said, so if we have, we have to have that kind of thing. And she goes, okay. And we just put it in there. We just found a good spot, you know, and we were like, we got it. And so it was like this weird wish list. I felt like a kid in the candy store. We're just walking around taking all the best bits of Conan and then just kind of going, what if it was this and that? Oh, and then they're on a pirate ship. Yeah. And then they go here. And it was just this fun swashbuckling kind of energy that we put into it. And it gave us a lot of swagger, I think. And when you read it, I think that really comes through. There's an energy and there's a swagger and there's like a, like just, you know, kind of fuck it. We're going to do all the cool things and have fun with it. And the readers will have fun too. That's great. Now, and uh, as you say, there are the established ages of Conan really are kind of mm-hmm. blueprinted out there. Red Sonia and I and I have to confess, I haven't read a lot of Howard stuff, and I sure. know that Sonia there there really is a limited amount of attention. Well, there's actually nothing in the novels. So Sonia, okay. the, there's a different Sonia is a completely different character in the novels, and she never meets Conan in the novels. She's not even right. in the in Hyboria. She's like a right. totally different character. But Roy Thomas, when he was writing the classic comic sure. series, he wanted a, a female foil for Conan. And so he took the name and he, and he changed the spelling of it a little bit. And he came up with this comic character that was, right. you know, as big as he was. And she became her own thing in the comics. So there's yeah. really no, there's no continuity there that we were worried about breaking with her. It was really just making sure that it fit within the confines of the timeline for Conan. But also, I'm, I'm curious about the opportunity of showing Red Sonia beyond her prime, which, as oh, sure. I remember, was really 90, you know, really, if not 99%, 100% of oh, what totally. we've seen of Sonia before. So that's well, we an interesting that, yeah. opportunity. It's nice. We get this maturity to her that yes. hasn't really shown very much. And so you get to really think about her in a, in a bigger way. And, and that was very much important to us is that they're both equally legendary and equally amazing and equally capable, yes. but not in some sort of a weird tit for tat kind of way, but just like, just, just that they are, that you would know oh. immediately that, that they're standing on the same kind of ground because of their capabilities and because of the way that we treat them respectfully, you know? Well, and like, like Superman and Wonder Woman being thrown together. I mean, it's yeah. just like, no, they, they both have uh, an established or, or should have a level of street cred where this is why the other is attracted to them. Yeah, and it, you yeah. know, and it's, it's weird that it took so long that it was John Byrne. That's like, well, these are, these are the two that should be together. I right, mean, I, right. you know, I, I, as a kid, I don't remember that ever really happening. And no, um, it always sounded like fan fiction, I think to people, but, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's what's, that's what's sort of fun about the, you know, the, being able to play with these big personalities and sort of say sure. to ourselves, okay, what, 
you know, what if or what are the possibilities here? And and everyone involved, the Dark Horse people and um, the the rights holders for both Conan and Red Sonja, because they're actually owned by different companies. That's why they haven't crossed over in like 15 years. Um, okay. They were they were totally cool, you know, with the stuff that we were throwing down, and they've been very very supportive and very excited, you know. And the feedback that they did give us was very, very on target. Like, you know, you, when you work on licensed stuff, you never know what you're going to get. You know, you want it, you want the the licensor to be happy, you want them to be excited uh, about the product that you're putting together because you know it's got their stamp of approval on it. And when you get feedback, you hope that it's the best kind, that it's the kind that gives you additional information you didn't know or, or you know, broadens your understanding of why it is what it is. And that's exactly what they did. So it's, uh, it's been a great experience. That's excellent. And where are you in the story now? I mean, we're all done. That's the other weird thing. Oh, it did finish. Excuse stuff. me. Well, it's, it's – sorry. One more issue has to come out. But I've been done for months. So. Okay. You know, because of the approval process on uh, with two companies and everything, they wanted to have it in, you know, quite a bit in advance. Understand? Oh, of course. Oh yeah, no, yeah. and I know, I know, Dark Horse in particular, I think kind of, kind of schedules that stuff and smartly so that way everything stays on schedule. So, yep, yep, absolutely. Very cool. And so it's all I, we proofed the last issue and that's off the press. Um, so it's been weird because I've had a bunch of books coming out, but almost all of them are things that I wrote, you know, five six months ago, and so people are like you must be losing your mind. I'm like, well, remember five, six months ago when I didn't go out or talk to you? That's why. It's because I was doing this and I was doing, you know, five other projects at the same time. So, but right now things are not too, too bad. Like Skull Kickers is wrapping up and that's obviously taking a lot of my attention. Um, I've got a couple other pitches that I'm waiting on hearing back about and, you know, the sort of percolations of potential projects along with, uh, you know, sort of finishing up some of my commitments uh, across the board, so you know, just proofing things and and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. for, for teaching at Seneca, are you teaching a comics class? What are you teaching there? I teach in their animation program. So okay. it changes. Okay. Yeah, it changes by semester. Um, this semester, for example, I'm teaching environmental drawing. So it's like perspective drawing, background. It's basically the line art that would go to the background painters uh, on a traditional production. But now it's all digital stuff. But so it's perspective drawing and environmental drawing and, and things like that. Um, I'm also teaching the animation history course, which is cool. amazing. I get, we get to watch films and analyze them, understand their greater context and sort of the film industry and who the pioneers were and, and stylistic changes throughout the decades. That's excellent. I was going to ask if, and now I'm blanking on his name, but the the great uh, Gertie the Dinosaur and uh... oh, Windsor McKay. Yeah, Winsor McKay, of course. Yeah, I've, I really only recently saw on Tur- on Turner Classic Movies uh, a lot of his, you know, silent oh. cartoons. And yeah, Winsor McKay is-, is the father of animation. Like, he's the one that influenced, you know, guys like Disney and, and Chuck Jones yep. saw his films and were like, oh, this is a thing. And uh, what's amazing when you watch McKay's stuff is how unbelievably confident it is. You know, you look at the earliest uh, Felix the Cat cartoons or things like that. And the the studio has to go through such a huge transition of skill, but put years on such years. I was going to say put years on some of the stuff so people could. Oh, you talk, you're talking like you know nineteen nineteen ten you know nineteen twelve stuff like that. Yep. And but yep. but there's there's no one who's literally done this stuff before, and McKay's just such a natural draftsman, and he's got such incredible vision 
for how things should move. And you see that in the Little Nemo comic strip where they yes, look they. like moving pictures. They look like storyboards before there were storyboards. Yep. And and so his natural understanding of how things should look in motion just translated itself so effortlessly to animation. And you see that stuff and you can't believe how how crude everything else looks from every other studio, you know, early on. It takes them decades to catch up to where he is as a drafts person. Twenty you know? years earlier. Yeah, twenty oh, years yeah. earlier. It's, it's mean, mind bending. Compare the sinking of the Lusitania. Right. Isn't that the isn't that the ship that yeah. he does, I yeah. believe? And at to yeah. literally Steamboat Willie taking nothing oh, yeah. away from Disney. But no, exactly, not at all. it's but it is, you're right. I mean it's it's But it's interesting too because earlier. McKay considered animation like a personal just like him doing his comic strip that he would of course draw every frame. And it wasn't until uh, the Bray company started doing the studio system where it would be like someone would do key drawings and someone would do backgrounds and someone would do this character or whatever, that it really turned into the studio system and and the way that animation is produced in the modern era. So, you know, McKay is very much like an auteur doing it all himself. And, you know, the studio system changes the whole game because now you can have groups of people working on the films and they can produce the stuff that much faster. You know, McKay's taking months and months to do one short picture, and, you know, the Bray Company can crank out, you know, two a month or whatever. And so right, because just, it becomes uh, a factory. It's like a factory. It is a factory, system. exactly, and reusing backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. And yes. so, um, you know, but it's fascinating showing the students and, and hopefully broadening their understanding of both the art form and kind of the stylistic, the, the people that influence the people that they know. You know, showing them from the 50s the – the UPA style, which is this flat Talk about uh, the UPA graphic. So, yes. Yes. It's this, it's this graphic look that really took over the animation world for quite some time. And when you look at shows like Samurai Jack or you look at um, Dexter's Lab or Powerpuff Girls or, or a lot of the Flash animation shows we see nowadays, um, they're clearly you know built off of the same kind of paradigm, visually speaking. And so – you know, the students know these modern uh, cartoons, but they don't, I think, fully understand where it comes from or, or how, in some cases, how old some of this stuff is, stylistically speaking. And, and showing them, you know, sort of the, the through line of influence, I think, is really important. Or giving them a greater appreciation for where this stuff comes from, I think, is really valuable. So that when they're doing their artwork, they can dig in deeper to the archives or when they're talking to a client that they're speaking knowledgeably about the style or about, you know, the material and, and just giving them a broad base appreciation of the art form. That's really my job. It's not, yes, there's a certain amount of memorization. Like you have to know when certain films came out or people's names, but I don't want to teach a history course. That's just dry repetition and, and, you know, parroting back data. I want it to be that when you leave the course, you're excited about animation that you want to watch. I showed you three examples of a particular era and you want to watch 20 more because you're inspired to do so, you know, not because it's an assignment. Um, And that's really what means a lot to me about, about being able to dig in and show this stuff. And some of it's just fascinating too. Um, At the end of first semester in animation history, we talk about world war two and the way that animation was used as part of the propaganda. And so we watch a lot of the cartoons and they're, strange and they're racist and they're uh, patriotic and intense propaganda. And, and the students' minds are blown by these films because they're so outside of the way that you expect to see 
these characters and the context that you see them in Disney characters oh, yeah. and Warner Brothers characters and, and Popeye and all that sort of stuff. Yes. Uh, there's a, there's a, a few of the Fleischer Superman cartoons. There's one called the 11th hour where Superman is literally over in Japan, destroying Navy ships as a terrorist in the middle of the night. So in the middle of the night, he's basically destroying the ships that are being built by the Japanese. And the first couple that he's destroying, you're sort of like, well, those ships were being constructed. There's probably no one on them. It's not like Superman's, you wouldn't kill anybody. And then midway through the cartoon, you see a montage where he's blowing up bridges that have vehicles driving over them. Like he just fucking killed like 30, (laughs) 40 Japanese soldiers, like without compunction, no big deal because it's wartime. And that's, that's what's required, right? It's just, This this kind of stuff that I think people, if they haven't seen it, it, it would totally blow your mind, you know, and and showing the students. I think they have that idea that, you know, modern industry is all about shilling stuff or, you know, people selling right. out. And you're like, no, it's always been, you know, it's always in different contexts. This stuff has been commercial and has been commercialized, you know, and you, you, you read essays where uh, people are talking about the animation art form that it's becoming a soulless commercial machine in 1935, you know? But that's the kind of stuff that I think really broadens their minds and gives them just a greater context for the art form and also for for the whole thing and, and hopefully generates inspiration that will stick with them over the years, you know? That's fantastic. No, I think, um, that's why I really think that the art that uh, the geek culture embraces is finally getting the opportunity to be legitimate in the eyes of, you know, colleges, the academic world. Mm-hmm. And Diana Schutz and I were talking about that and what she's trying to do uh, with comics. And, right. And she's, so she's stepped away from her editing and now she's going to be doing teaching, right? Yeah, she has, like yourself, she's been doing teaching for the last few years. Amazing. But now she's, you know, yeah, she's going to focus primarily on that. And that's the thing. It's like, no, the that's that's the exciting thing is that the rest of the world is coming around. and Or I should say, really, again, more North America because really the rest sure. of the world is kind of already hip to it. Yeah, yeah like, totally. You know, and and even let's let's not even blame Canada. Let's let's really you know stick to the forty eighth. I mean, that's really you know we're the knuckleheads that are, you know, <laughs> like kind of last to the dance. And it's oh yeah, that's right. This stuff should be kind of a little. More, it's more than just true. It is commercial art, and it is sure. made to sell shit. But by the same token, there is an art form here, and it's being recognized. No, totally. So, I think I think one of the one of the fascinating things too, like um, I don't, you know, there's students in the class. Obviously, some of them are comic book fans. And uh, they might know my work and some of them don't until they're pretty deep into the course. I don't really talk about it that much in school because they're there to learn about animation. And I always feel awkward. Like I don't want to be up at the front shilling my stuff like, hey, you should buy my books. You know, like it's I just feel like that's you're like, uh, yeah, it's crass, you know, it's it's like uh, Matthew Broderick uh, and uh, Brando's movie, uh, The the Freshman, where uh, as I say in Flender on film. Right. Like I just, yeah, I just, I, I feel kind of dirty if I did something like that. So there's been a couple of times, particularly like on Samurai Jack, where some of the students didn't know I was doing the comic for months and months and months, you know? Uh, and then they're like, why the hell didn't you say something? I was like, I, I don't know. I'm just doing comics over here. You know, it's just, 
just what's going on. You should pay more attention. You know, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, uh, but, but I do really, um, the only thing they do notice is of course the convention travel. Cause once the season really kicks into gear, I end up having to do all sorts of makeup classes or schedule starts to get pretty squirrely, you know, as I'm trying to figure out how to fit in all these classes and exams while I'm doing conventions or I'm looking at my calendar and it just looks like a game of Tetris filling every block, you know? So what, uh, what shows are you going to be at uh, coming up? I've got Calgary this weekend, which I'm right. uh, incredibly excited about. It's the 10th anniversary of the show. It's organized by a dear friend of mine, Kendrick Spoon. And uh, I've been at every single one uh, when they were just starting off and they had like 1300 people show up for the first year. I was there uh, just to support him. And he was like, please tell people we'll bring guests out, just anything. And now they had, you know, like 90,000 attendee last year or something, 80,000 or wow. something. It was just psychotically one of the biggest shows, like right up there, right behind, you know, New York Comic Con and, and Fan Expo Canada. Um, yeah, it's bonkers. But that's the growth over 10 years. And they, I mean, Ken does it better than almost anybody. He's really got his eye on the ball and he knows what he's doing. So early on, I hooked him up like I just opened up my Rolodex and, and recommended everyone to go to the show. And he basically said to me, well, you're grandfathered in now. Any year you want to go, I'll bring you. And I said, well, then I'm going every, every year. And he goes, well, then I'll bring you every year. So I just <laughs> take advantage of that. But um, and it's been nice, though, because as my career sort of grown, it's been, you know, that much nicer to sort of have the, the hometown crowd recognize me and see me there and be excited to see me year after year. Uh, so I've got that one lined up. Um, I'm going to be at New York Special Edition. Which okay, I, I haven't done before. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, oh, jumping back in May, I'm going to be at Escape Pod Comics for Free Comic Book Day. So they're in Long Island, and they're bringing me out, which is very cool. Um, I'm also doing TCAF, which is the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. So that's the one I mentioned at the start here. That's the um, the free show that's at the the reference library here in Toronto, and it's cool. absolutely stunning. Uh, what month is like that? That's in that May. May? That's, yeah, okay. the second weekend of May. I'm doing Montreal Comic Con in July, early July. I'm on the fence about San Diego, which is yeah, weird. Yeah, I was going to say, because that's, it's, well, yeah, I mean, it's the, the second weekend week. after. It's the second right. week. It's right after Montreal. Um, sure. So if I miss San Diego, it will be my first time in 15 years that I don't go. So, but the show is so expensive and the show is so. Yep. <laughs> like it's it's a great there. show and I do yes, I do is. love it but like last year in particular it was unbelievably expensive and I had meetings but every time I would have a meeting with an editor or with a you know company or whatever they would show up late or exhausted or they would you know rain check and you'd finally sit down with someone and they would just look like death warmed over and then they would talk to you for 5 minutes and they'd go this is great let's follow up after the show and I'm like yeah. Well, if we're just going to follow up after the show, why am I at the show? Like, I just, I'm hip. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't know. And I love it. Like, I, you know, there's an element of it. Oh, I know I'm going to, I'm going to kick Go myself on. if I'm not there. But on the other hand, I'm kind of like, man, I got a lot of stuff I'm working on, and you know, it's it it it's a week there, and then it's like a week of recovery afterwards. Oh, you have to and again. I just, no, I know. Yeah. So I feel like. I kind of, you know, so I'm sort of on the fence uh, whether or not I'm going to end up going. And I know if some of my friends hear this, they're just going to call me and be like, bullshit, you'll be there. 
we'll see you don't even you know but but the reality is i haven't really been pushing uh the way i have in previous years um you know well, consecutive we'll weeks consecutive weeks can really hurt even more because oh yeah for several years uh san diego was or uh the uh wizard chicago show that is now the chicago comic-con right was right. literally like within a week of San Diego. And oh, I remember my. several several years before 2010 where, yeah, I'd see everybody in San Diego and then see them the next weekend in Chicago. And, yeah, everyone was just like very tired and very ashy. Just, the <laughs> wiped circuit. Out. Yeah, the yes. circuit. Yeah, I just so kind of glazed look. Yeah, I'm on the fence about about um, about San Diego. I do, um, I do Gen Con, which is the big fantasy sure. and gaming show. And yes. Skull Kickers goes over like gangbusters there. That makes uh, sense. It, and it's funny, I didn't, I wasn't going to do the show. My friend Howard Taylor, he does a web comic called Schlock Mercenary. It's this award-winning science fiction comic, and he's good friends with Tracy Hickman, who I don't know how much you know fantasy stuff. Tracy did the Dragonlance books back in the eighties, oh, okay, and he's sure, a New York sure. Times best-selling author. And in the fantasy world, he's like a big, big deal. And <laughs> So, uh, you know, he was boothing with Tracy and was like, you know, Tracy doesn't have a book coming out this year. We need to keep the table. It's sort of like San Diego in the sense you can never not have the table. Otherwise, you lose it. I understand. And so he was like, you know, Tracy's kind of hoping to offload some of his expense this year. Do you want to take his spot? We'll give you a deal on it because we just want to hold it. You can try out the show. And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And so I brought down a bunch of books, and it was just seismic. The response was amazing. And by the end of the show, Tracy actually came by and just did a couple signings. He didn't do a full setup. And we all went for dinner, and we had a great talk. And then Tracy was like, I think it would be just great if it was the three of us doing the show in the future. And I said, uh, 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 yes. (laughs) And so we've been boothing there now for the last three years together, and it's just been amazing. You know, and as I've done more – kind of fantasy stuff and gaming stuff, uh, it's been that much stronger. So this year will be particularly awesome because since last year I did both the Dungeons and Dragons book and Conan. So yeah, that's going to be yeah, cool. Exactly. No, that's, that makes sense. And yeah, I kind of figured, uh, the D and D connection and everything. And also it just makes sense with skull kickers. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. in that room and everything. So yeah. And they've cool. also, um, they, they do a writer's symposia, so it's like a, a fantasy authors and science fiction authors talking about their craft. And this is the first year they're going to have a comic learning track. So you can basically sign, sign up for it and you can learn about how to write comics. And um, I can't say they've got a really good lineup of guests. They haven't announced them yet. But okay. I think people are going to be really surprised. I mean, I'm on there, duh, because I'm going to be there anyways. But I, I am definitely the small fry in terms of name brand recognition of people that they've got coming to the show for That's this uh, symposia. Yeah. Well, cause you know, again, through devil's do, um, and forgotten realms and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of my friends have done both, you know, we're doing Gen Con for that stuff, but as, oh, yeah. but I always, I also knew there was kind of a, a line between gaming and comics oh, and it's interesting. It's interesting to hear that that's kind of breaking down now. Yeah, I mean, obviously the fancy stuff goes over, you know, best. But I think that sure. Wayward will do pretty well there as well because you've got that. I mean, Buffy, you know, is pretty easy sure. to sell in that regard. But but there's definitely – I had Samurai Jack books there last year, and they sold out. People were super excited about it. It definitely cross-pollinates quite well. 
Um, the show is quite expensive. It has San Diego oh, style yeah. kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, dedication. And so I don't think it's a show that a comic person could just sort of casually, oh, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Right. If your stuff's in that wheelhouse, if you're doing fantasy or sci-fi, you know, it might be one worth considering down the road kind of thing. Well, and I know that certainly it's been uh, part of uh, an interesting controversy when Indiana changed its state laws. And, uh, oh, that, yeah. That speaks to the future of, uh, of Gen Con in Indianapolis. So It does. Uh, Actually, there was a big email that went out to um, all the symposia authors that was essentially like, you know, if you don't want to come to the show this year, we totally understand and there's no hard feelings. And basically, you know, giving yeah. people an out if required kind of thing. Understood. So. No, it's uh, – complicated issue and i and i can appreciate that and i can also i, I think it's kind of cool that even gen con is like well maybe we're gonna have to reassess what's going yeah, on absolutely. if we really have to be that way so no that's uh it's interesting times but that's unfortunately well, going to be another sub another conversation in terms oh, of yeah, totally. no go on if you got a, if you got a thought no no it's interesting right because you know um gen con is such a uh You know, it's an amazing show. It's so different from any other comic show I've ever been to because the people that come to Gen Con, they're there to socialize with each other and play games. And even when they have the occasional celebrity or they have the occasional big name author, there there isn't the kind of celebrity worship that you get at like a San Diego or at some of these pop culture shows. Like people are excited to meet them, but the game is the thing. Being there and socializing with your people and playing games is everything. And so when you see that, it, there's such a different social element to it. It's so, I, like, I really do love it. You go to the show, and honest to God, 24 hours a day, people are playing games in the hotels, and they're playing games yes. at the convention center. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Sean Kirkham, he's one of the guys that runs Skybound for, for Robert. Uh, he's a big game guy. And he uh, was working with a game designer. They had their own game that they'd come up with. And Sean was like, oh, man, I think I'm going to go to Gen Con. And I said, oh, great. I'll be there. We'll hang out. And he pulled, like, the show had already been going for a day by the time he arrived. And so we went out for dinner, and we grabbed a drink. And he was saying, oh, man, I can't wait to see people playing games. And I said, we can go to the convention center right now. He goes, it's quarter to 12. I said, ha, just... You have no idea, do you? And we just wandered <laughs> over there, and the place was fucking packed. Packed. The exhibit hall is closed, so you can't buy stuff. But the gaming areas where people play at midnight was packed. People are intense, you know? And literally, yes. when we walked in to the Magic the Gathering area, they were starting like a midnight tournament, and they were getting people hyped up for it. So the game sure. starts at midnight and it'll go to like three in the morning or something. And you're just like, that's part of the formal programming of the show. You know, like it no, is, you know, I, I, it's being crazy. In, being in sports, uh, I've had a lot of vacation to go to Vegas. Uh, and especially I covered boxing for many years. And I really think there's a synergy between poker rooms in Vegas and gaming rooms oh, yeah. in terms of the intense competition mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just that 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 focused concentration that's going on and i love it and it does it it absolutely cracks me up where i'm like oh my god i'm like you know the poker guys have no idea but there are definitely brothers in this yeah they're they're kinship over with these with the D &D kids and you know by the time you get to the time you get to sunday 
there's people just zombies just walking around because they've been up at all hours playing weird <laughs> demos at, at whatever time and they're just stumbling around in a haze but they're smiling because they had such a great time yeah. socializing with people or playing new games or meeting you know uh people and and finding this shared experience and you cool. i don't know you go to gen con and you can't as much as there is all the basement boy kind of cliches and the, oh look at these fat nerds or whatever you can't you can't feel that way by the time you go to the show and you get through one of them you're just like everyone is having such a goddamn good time how could you be mad about this how could you think anything but that this is a good thing and particularly in the last few years where they've been doing a amazing job at promoting uh, family board games and family entertainment and so on sunday uh kids i think they either they either let them in free or for like some nominal fee and you can they have tons of kids specific programming and to see this next generation of gamers you know and i was talking to someone about this last year i said look comics you know have this weird we've got this weird stigma where we're like no no we're adults we're not for kids and now of course you know it's we're fighting to get it back we're fighting to sort of convince people no no I swear to god it's not all porn we can honestly make stuff for children you know it's not just r rated movies and whatever but but gaming really has never had that kind of problem. Like, how many R-rated board games are there? You know what I mean? Like, sure, you can swear while you're playing Monopoly, but you don't have to. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so people playing Dungeons and Dragons, sure, they Monopoly. can do. Go on, right? Go on. But, but you can play Dungeons and Dragons, and you can make it like a really dirty, fucked up game. Shriek, but shriek. as soon as a kid's involved, you don't. You just, hey, we're gonna kill the goblins and we're gonna get the treasure. And so sure. gaming, in many ways, I think is a perfect. Um, gateway to all all the nerdly arts i don't know how else to put it like to get kids that. involved and to get them interacting with games and to and to get them excited about creating stories or or playing with their parents or playing with their friends getting away from a television or a computer and just socializing you know um Absolutely. i feel no, no, i feel no. really really good about that you know no, I agree, and it, it is the one component of Dungeons and & Dragons that I absolutely was like, oh, this is a lot of fun, and it is creative. And uh, I, I, I fell into the wrong hardcore D&D crowd. God bless them, but it got, it yeah. got a little too intense. So my, my uh. experience was, was about one summer, and it was fun, and I'm like, all right. And I'm like, you know, all my friends that were really into it, they were really into it. And I just, you know, hey, I'm, a, I'm actually a ninja, but I'm pretending to be a cleric, and I'm like, all right, I'm out. Nice. Nice. I like good luck. I, um, good luck to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, um, I wouldn't be a writer if it wasn't for Dungeons and Dragons. I mean that honestly, and I said that uh, a couple times to in interviews. But D and D taught me how to tell stories, and it taught me how to make characters, and it taught me sort of the the value of kind of entertainment. I started playing D and D with my older brother and my cousins, and I was the kid, and they were a little bit older. They were teenagers, and I was I I remember it because. I was like eight years old, and I think on the original game it said 10 and up, and they were like, you shouldn't even be playing this. And so um, I would be there at the table, and, you know, it didn't matter that I was younger. It didn't matter that I, uh, you know, I, my dice rolled the same as everyone else's, and my character could be just as powerful as anyone else. And when it came around to my turn, I got to say what I did in the adventure. And if I said it in an entertaining way or I, if I made them laugh, that was like the best feeling I could imagine because these older kids that I respected, my brother and my cousins, they thought I was funny and they thought I was entertaining and they thought the story that I told was good. And so that was like my 
that was like 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 a drug to me like i wanted sure. to entertain and i wanted to make stories with them and eventually for myself you know very cool man that's excellent hey it's uh no it sounds like everything's going uh, the right direction and everything so uh continued success with wayward as it moves oh, thank forward you so and, much. and as you're wrapping up uh skull kickers and um and also uh jack samurai jack yeah. so Lots uh of good no Absolutely, man. No, and uh, I imagine there'll be more announcements uh, later this year, possibly, or? Yeah, yeah, there's an announcement coming in, I want to say, next month. Uh, oh. So that should be uh, pretty exciting. So I'm I'm stoked for that. Um, it was funny because it was, it was one of these things where I had a pitch put together. And, you know, all the ones that I, that I did a bunch of pitching on projects, and I was like, oh, I'm for sure, like, I... I could feel it like this will definitely be the one and then it doesn't happen. And this was the one where I started put together and I said, okay, I'll just do this. And then that of course is the one that actually, you know, hits, but whatever, like that's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked for it. So it's going to be excellent, fun. man. All right. Well, yeah. we'll be looking at the comic blogs for your, for your next announcement, but this is really educational, man. I, I appreciated you, uh, going into, uh, some of the, some of the things that creators should think about as they, as they make their books. And again, I do point people to your blog, and uh, that would be jimzub.com, of course. That's right. And, uh, and look for those essays about – Yeah, uh, I've got a about, whole series of, of tutorials about making yes. comics, promoting comics, pitching your ideas, how scripts are written, just all kinds of stuff like that. Trying to cover pretty broad-based topics, both as a teacher and I think just trying to put some of my – like codify some of my experiences in a way that I could understand them a bit better. It also meant that when people ask me like on Twitter, Hey, how did you pitch your, how did you get an image book? I'm like, well, I've written a big thing about it. So now I don't have to answer you in 140 characters, you know, right. or give you the, or give you the brush off, you know? So no, no, it's no, they're very extensive and, uh, you know, se- several, a uh, like couple dozen really essays yeah. that uh, people can really pour over at jimsub.com. And uh, I I think it's valuable information, man. And I'm glad that you, like I said, open the hood and let people in and have them figure stuff out. But uh, continued success. I'm really glad we had this opportunity to chat, and I'm sure we'll ch- uh, chat again. Yeah, it's wonderful. I really appreciate you uh, setting this up so quick. Uh, you kick butt, so thank you. Jim Zub, happy uh, to have that conversation with him and looking forward to the next one. And hope you enjoy today's episode of Word Balloon, uh, brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Wonderful deals are happening at in-stock trades. I had mentioned to you the Jim Zum product in uh, segment one, but uh, we can move on and uh, discuss some other things that are going on. Uh, in fact, it'll tie into uh, C2E2 mentioning that uh, Top 10, there's a new uh, edition of Top 10. It is uh, the complete story. Xander Cannon, Alan Moore, and our own Gene Ha, Chicago's very own. And uh, I mention it uh, not only because uh, the book is on sale at in-stock trades, but also because... Uh, Gene and I are going to be doing a panel at C2E2. It's a spotlight on Gene. I'm very pleased to be moderating. You might have heard uh, the pre- the tease of said uh, panel a couple weeks ago on Word Balloon. Well, uh, the panel happens this Friday, downtown Chicago, at C2E2. Uh, if you're going to the convention, I'd love to see you there. Um, we will have the panel going on live and then uh, recorded and uh, presented as a Word Balloon later on. So uh, join me for a strange look at Gene's uh, career. We're going to do a lot more uh, detail than what we did in our previous Word Balloon conversation. We wanted to save it for the panel and knew that eventually we'd save it for the pod, as Artie and Franco and I like to say on Oh Yeah Comics. But uh, you can get Top 10, the uh, complete uh, trade paperback edition, is 42% off and just $14.49. 
my buddies Tim and Steve Seeley uh, are not only great comic creators, but they're huge He-Man fans. And uh, they, along with Dark Horse Comics, uh, present Art of He-Man and Masters of the Universe. Who better to write the text than Tim and Steve Seeley? 42% off. It's just $23.19. You can get Frank Miller's Ronin Gallery Edition hardcover at 20% off, uh, $156. You can get Cerebus Volume 2 High Society Classic Dave Sim, 30% off, $21. Uh, Earth 2... Volume 5, The Kryptonian, that's right, Earth 2 Superman's debut, 42% off, $14.49. From Eduardo Riso and Brian Azzarello, the classic 100 Bullets trade paperback, Book 2 is 42% off, $14.49. And uh, wrapping things up, uh, my buddy Doc Shaner did an amazing cover for Shazam, a celebration of 75 years. The hardcover is 50% off. $19.99. Tons more waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. Take a look for yourself. You will not believe the deals at InStockTrades.com. John Suntra saying thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. If you're at C2E2, please stop by and say hello. Uh, I'm going to be walking around with video on Saturday and Sunday, and uh, I would be very happy to uh, videotape you uh, saying hello. So uh, be be sure if you see me with uh, a person with a camera and stuff like that, and uh, let me know that you're a Word Balloon listener. Happy to say hello to you. And thank you personally for uh, enjoying Word Balloon. Hope you do. You know, if you want to shake your fist at me, you can do that as well. But uh, looking forward to C2E2 as always. And uh, lots more convention fun uh, coming up this year later on. We'll tell you more details in the weeks ahead. Uh, also, Word Balloon's 10th anniversary coming up next month, May 10th. Can't believe it. Uh, it'll be 10 years. And uh, not quite 600 episodes, but a shit ton of hours. And thank you for spending those hours with me. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015.